Welcome to Revenge of the 80s Kids. I'm one of the 80s Kids, and my name is Leo. I am the other 80s Kids, and my name is Ian. No! You're getting the nationality of the researchers wrong! I did not realise I was supposed to hate this film. Here comes the wife. Blood slash gore and people having limbs amputated. I've never seen Jaws. Oh, it's James Bond does black exploitation. There's nothing else I have to explain ecology's talk about. Thank you, wife. For your comment, which I shall ignore. Ever-increasing set pieces of domestic violence. Superman in the movies, he's never not been a douche. You don't know what theatres are going to be about until you've already lived them. Burn, burn, burn. Is this your bum? But that's what I think people found boring, that they weren't all beating each other up. They go around kidnapping babies who all... <laughs> My hand burst forth from Gravesend. What? That person was a woman the whole time? I really like Supergram. Found it annoying. It's out. People thought that the Ghostbusters Spectrum game was a good game, but it wasn't. Go in there, save the hostages, shoot people. Um, we better keep that secret from the government. Kids running out of films, absolutely screaming their heads off, crying. Sure. Hey, you take the Fabergé eggs, I throw in the, uh, the heroin. With all these boys with these toys who didn't have a clue what they were named. Is this usually about the emotional journey of the man in learning what a bit of a dick he is? We're going to dump. 50% of things that you're wondering about and never mention them again. The thing about Superman's home planet and his race of Krypton is that they're all boring. Tentacles being shoved in people's mouths and drama is two people standing in a room talking urgently. I can't quite believe Honey I Shrunk the, the Time Lord. <laughs> this says I can't talk about Doctor Who on the podcast. They might look like gay pridey walks, but they are the care there. My faithful brother Numsy. How to kind of get into women a little bit. I have not seen it again since and I've had no desire to go see it again. I probably will never see it again. See yourself as a child, Ebenezer Scrooge, so young, so innocent, so filled with wonder. This 2014 is going to be the year of the biscuit. Ian isn't here. I have a real issue with you throwing Roger Rabbit as a woman. Of course, then you go back and watch the beginning and you realise that Leo is, in fact, a complete and total bastard. Is that the wife? We'll get to you soon, don't worry. Hey, that sent some kids into a, into a death game. Well, at the time, everyone was obsessed with, you know, a nuclear war. I, I just want to break in. The writers say no. He doesn't turn up until halfway into the movie and then it disappears again. <laughs> Spival and Harry Potter both obviously works fiction. I'm just saying that to raise some dramatic tension. Got to think for kind of creepy kids they kind of disturb me. It leaves you with many questions. One. Why was Kevin Costner a huge star? There's something slightly holy and mystical about this small grey box. One, Sheila LaBeouf. The end. What is it with men and vaginas? Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcast. Gentlemen, 
In our time, we have had many problems, but not today. Today is a special day. Today is the anniversary of our podcast. We are one year old exactly-ish, maybe, slightly. Anyway, uh, it's episode 50, and this is a year. And uh, I think we should all celebrate like it's the last day of term. And we can all bring in toys and games and not have to wear school uniforms. And it's all crazy and relaxed. So uh, if you've all done your project work correctly, you should have all brought in three things you think are marvellous, and you're going to share them with the group. So uh, which of us feels brave to go up and seize the moment and talk about the thing that inspired them the most? I think, I think for a moment, just for explanation for Johnny Come Lately's to the podcast, the reason episode 50 is our year anniversary is, first of all, because we had an episode zero, uh, and second of all, because... There was a period, that dark period, we shall refer to as around about last August-ish, where um, we four, lost a bunch four of Four pre-recorded episodes. Yes, disappeared, yes. So we, we had a week where there was nothing, no no 80s kids at all, at all. So this is a year. We've been doing this for a year. And, and in first, it was but just... Some of us have been doing it for a year. Some of us turned up late. I'm not naming any names here, though. <laughs> and some of us are part-timers. Yes, there's part-timers. Oh, sorry, 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 I was late. Uh, I just, uh, you know, bust well, and everything. Fair, it took a while to get to 1980, and of course, uh, you know, it's, it's, it was those words, Hawk the Slayer. That's what <laughs> that's what began it all back in the day. Yes. <laughs> uh, so yes, um, I think that as as Sue was the first one who knew in her mind what she wanted to share with the world, uh, maybe she should go first. Okay, I'm quite happy to go for it. Your first item, Sue. Alice in Wonderland. Alice in Wonderland. And I don't care if that's the books, the films, the cartoon. I don't care if it's costumes. I don't care how you present Alice in Wonderland to the world. Alice in Wonderland should always be kept for prosperity. It's amazing. End of story. Personally, I would keep the books and possibly the Disney cartoon just for the fun of it. I love Alice in Wonderland. I love the whole story. I love the whole idea of losing yourself within this kind of separate world i love everything about alice in wonderland so yeah that's, that would be first choice for me so i'm even making a room that's an alice room so we call it the alice room in our house where is the furniture really slightly... really big inside that room yeah. well the thing is it's slightly things that are slightly quirky and things that are slightly off and colorful and things that are a bit weird and you know where you know nothing slightly as it's should be you know the world needs kind of absurdist kind of surrealism really and i think that you know that that purposely that that embodies the spirit of all of that um so yes i think there's a great tradition of surrealism in children's stories though isn't there it's it's amazing you know normally these lsd trips kind of stories are peddled to children because you know they've got this the writer's imagination just accepts everything that's given to them like a sponge and they just roll with it it's interesting yeah. though that lunacy has to uh is it, fine to begin with but eventually uh, when you go into that place it has to evolve some kind of internal logic and the classics are things like alice in wonderland where eventually things have a kind of nonsense logic yeah and that is that is very important i don't think you can sell kids just anything it has to be that particular high grade type of lunacy where there's 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 method in the madness, as it were, and then there's other. I mean, things where it, you know, I I I was was a big fan of the Phantom Tollbooth, 
which has kind of been forgotten a bit in this modern day and age. But in that story, uh, many mathematical and uh, grammatical concepts come to life. And, and the thing about it is, if we're always going to contrast the two, Alice in Wonderland is pure madness, whereas the Phantom Tollbooth is actually talking about language and logic and concept. And possibly that's why, you know, it's become a bit more tarnished and forgotten, is that Alice in Wonderland is just purely bonkers. Yeah. It's been... It's bonkers as well. (laughs) It's been told told so many times. I haven't read the original story, but I, I know so many of the iconic elements so well. Rabbit, the tea party, the you know, eat me, drink me, the uh, Queen of Hearts, uh, the Cheshire Cat. It's all just kind of in a mix in my head. Uh, Justin, can you comment on the Tim Burton version? <laughs> um, yeah, I think it was a mistake just to make a completely new story up. There's so much there that it's fantastic. I know it's big that we've seen hundreds of kind of adaptions of it, but I was really looking forward to you know, Tim Burton's kind of view of the classic. but uh, And, of course, we get certainly that in the characterization of the characters and the treatments of the characters. But being the story wasn't anywhere near, I felt, as satisfying as the original stories. So I thought that was a bit of a mistake. It was a bit of a kind of like expectations were high. I could see all these fantastic kind of images of Eleanor von Carter as uh, the Queen of Hearts, and that looked great. I'm like, this is brilliant. This is like the caricatures come to life. This is going to be fantastic. And then they get this kind of rather dreary kind of story of her being older. And, yeah, so I, I was not that impressed, I have to say. Well, all I get from it, I've never saw it, but the poster was Johnny Depp as the Mad Hatter. And it's almost like it's almost like it just cranks them out of a machine, you know? <laughs> Having formally yeah. cast him as Willy Wonka, it's like, oh, come on. I know you like the guy and he always <clears> likes <throat> working with you, but it would be so terrible to try somebody new. I don't think there's anything wrong. With, I mean, just to sort of hijack it for a minute. I, I personally, I just want to say that I don't think there's anything wrong with having a repertory of actors you work with. I just think that the, the way that Tim Burton and, and Johnny Depp and Helen Bonham Carter and all those people they work together and do the same kinds of things. It's like challenge yourselves. Yeah. Do something. Do something that's not weird. But we're, we're talking about Alice in Wonderland here, and I just want to sidestep into the, the number of places that it. You know, White Rabbit, for example. Comes up in saying, a lot of places. Uh, obviously, um, in, in the Matrix, for, uh, Matrix is full of Alice in Wonderland yeah, references. references. Yeah. There's a lot of Alice in Wonderland references in a lot of things, in music and in um, other stories. The Resident Evil series of yeah, movies. Yeah, in stories and also in lots of other films and things. So, you know, you kind of have to look at the influence it's made on a lot of other things. You know, yeah, there's a lot of other stories that just wouldn't exist without the whole Alice in Wonderland thing. And to be honest, when you're retelling it in a different way, Tim Burton's way, it's an interpretation. Whether you like it or not, it's kind of irrelevant because well, it's, it's it's kind of like it is, but it's, it's allowed to be interpreted that way because... Yeah, but it's not this... I don't know whether you've seen it, Sue, but it's yeah, not... Yeah, I have, yeah. But it isn't... I mean, it's a new story. It's basically like a, you know, it's yeah. a sequel, essentially. But, that, that, but to me, it's like... It's, it is to Alice in Wonderland as Hook is to Peter, Peter Pan. Peter Pan, yeah. But again, yeah. you take it as that. You know, you don't expect it to be Alice in Wonderland. Oh. Um, the yeah. Disney's not the proper story. You know, they change no, quite a lot of still, things. It is... I think there's something about... If you call something Alice in Wonderland, yeah. you expect it to be the Alice in Wonderland story. Um, 
And I think one of the things that possibly was the biggest disappointment of all is the idea that if if Tim Burton gone, well, I can't, I can use Johnny Depp as the Mad Hatter, and I can use Hannah Bonacarta as the the Queen of Hearts, but let's actually do Alice in Wonderland, and then he'd have done it. That might have been something to see, and it's something new to add. Doing something that's like a sequel when people felt that, well, if you just stuck to the original, we would have paid to see that. That's the disappointment. I agree, but at the same time, I take it for what it is, if you get what I'm saying. But I just, you know, I look at a lot of things like, you know, Sucker Punch is very much, there's a lot of Alice in Wonderland reference in Sucker Punch. There's a lot of, there's a lot of films that you kind of go... it's no denying that it's been a huge cultural impact. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, yes. Uh, if you, if you took that media. story away from the world, there's a lot of things that wouldn't have come. Yeah, from, yeah. You know, like, like that song about when I used to live word. next door to Alice, that's, that's also... No. no I'd, be, I'd be a fuck off. A very worthy uh, place there, I think, yes. in our, in our uh, collection. Of things, curated collection of things. Indeed. It's got us off to a very, uh, a, a very sort of strange start which well, is probably for the of, best sorry i kind of head, headlong straight into eccentricity and that's me so, so who yeah. is next uh, I'll, I'll go next okay uh, Justin. Uh, on so you. i'm really, really specific here because i actually have the thing in my hand okay this right. shows you how treasured it is okay and this is a bit this isn't this might sound like i'm being very self-indulgent here but it represents things but i have a, i have my uh, issue of 2000 AD Prog 118, of which the young artist, uh, Mr. Justin Wyatt, had his first kind of published work. Now, this is actually, uh, it's it's more 2000 AD, okay, which was uh, on two levels, really. One, I used to read it every week and was absolutely enthralled by this weekly comic, my word, this kind of lovely black and white thing. But also, my dad was art editor. Uh, and before anyone says anything, okay, uh, my name was changed to protect the innocent. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm using it, but I'm using that specific nature because I have it. Uh, I, my mind was blown. Well, one, I was in a very fortunate position because I remember uh, going up to the offices of IPC in London and brushing shoulders, meeting uh, the likes of kind of Brian Bolland and all these kind of uh, celebrities, uh, artists and writers and Pat Mills, all these kind of people associated with it. Um, so this was... Uh, an awakening, you know, this was like, oh my God, this is, you know, this, um, young teens, uh, in fact, well, this, when I had this kind of, my picture in there, I think I was eight at the time, but I I grew up with this, the love of like, oh wow, the, this is what I could get into, and also just kind of understanding how that works, as well as loving the arts and everything else, it was probably, you know, one of the key things that kind of has made me Whereas that introduction art at that age that I could, this is something I could actually do for a living and, you know, uh, or at least aspire to, let's say. Um, so, yes, uh, and 2018 represents that. And I was completely, you know, kind of mad for it for, for several years in the 80s, kind of growing up eagerly, spending my 20 pence or whatever it was to kind of, kind of get that weekly hit of Judge Dredd and, and, and the gang. And the gang. Dread and the gang. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ian, were you in, in yeah, 2000 AD at all? Uh, only very briefly when I was in hospital once and I expressed an interest in comics and therefore I was bought quite a few comics and I had a 2000 AD was one of the ones given to me there. And I quite liked the issue that I had. But a friend of mine liked it even more. 
And because he'd given me a Transformer once, he basically said, I quite like to have that, and I felt obliged to hand it over. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Somebody stole his 2001. To be fair, I got a Transformer you, out of it, so... You were, you were never... You were never, re- you never, never read 2008 as a periodical, then? No. Uh, probably an age thing, because I'm just a little bit younger than you guys. So I well, was... you're not that far behind me, and I no, I, so... I believe uh, the first episode, the first ish, the first prog, as it were, of 2018 was that in the late 70s or the early 80s, Justin? You would know this better than me. Uh, well, oh, well, the issue I've got here is 1979, so um, and that's 113. So, so yeah, that when I was six or seven. My parents experimented with getting me. I don't know what. This is the thing about my my uh, mum and dad is that they they are the. Whereas most parents, it's like one day their child comes home with a copy of 2080 and they're like, "Oh, this phase has begun." My yeah. parents actively tried to encourage that phase by subscribing yeah. me to it. When I, at a time when I was a little bit too too young to to appreciate 2080. Now. One of the things that uh, 2000 AD has taught me, and it taught me this in retrospect, is about um, picture composition. Yeah. Because I didn't understand. I got this 2000 AD. I looked at the pictures. I didn't understand what the hell was going on. I didn't want to look at it. I put it aside. I was like, and I came to the conclusion, well, I think parents feeding their kids a line were like, it's a bit old for you, is it? And I'm like, yes, it's a bit old for me. Because I figured... Oh, I don't understand it because it, it's I'm it's too old for me. Fast forward to round about two thousand and eight, stroke nine, and Justin has decided that uh, he is going to go in on us and this no dice RPG thing that we did, and in the manual we, we wanted to do like court cards and have these crazy pictures on the court cards. And we were discussing the concept for, I believe, it was the King of Spades. And there was this whole thing about a a mad scientist, and he had all of this stuff. And then we had this, like, logo character called Puck, uh, and he was supposed to appear in the court card somewhere, somehow. And he said he had this idea for putting him, turning into a lobster on a a monitor. And it, it was just, okay. And we got the eventual picture. And you look at it, and it all kind of slots into place. There's a guy standing by this crazy uh, technical machine, and on this little monitor, which takes up possibly 6% of the entire space of the entire image, there's a picture of Puck uh, viewed through a fishbowl eye lens camera thing turning into a lobster. And um, what the thing that strikes me is that when Justin tells me what the picture is going to be, I'm like... I'm not sure that you're going to really understand what's on the monitor. I know that if most people drew that, you wouldn't you you would be like squinting at the monitor going, What's going on there? What struck me was the instant your eye just looked at the image and went, Pop, there's a man turning into a lobster on a small television screen about which is six percent of the image. And you just saw it. And I said, that's amazing. And Justin's like, ah, well, I learned all this stuff uh, when I was working in various places uh, about how to compose a picture so your eye is drawn and it makes sense of various parts of the image. The reason I mentioned this is because if you then rewind back to the 2000 AD incident, although later on I took time and trouble to understand, the artists at 2000 AD were working at such a lick 
that they didn't have t- they they had time for the rawest they couldn't think how am i going to put this comic book script together to the optimal degree they just had to get it bloody drawn and i've got the complete ballad of halo jones a strip that alan moore wrote for 2000 ad and the composition of some of the pages in that is just terrible like you look at the page and you know what's going on because you know the story but if you didn't you'd be like Who's that? Which which person is in which frame? And it's not because the artist who's drawn it is a bad artist. It's just because they were working with someone standing over them with a whip, probably Justin's dad. Go <laughs> get it written, get it, get it done, do it now. We've got a weekly edition, and and yeah. So that's what was difficult about 2000 AD is that you know they couldn't always get it. And this was the thing: 2000 AD is the little British comic that could. Marvel, DC, they've got time, resources, you know, mega corporations. They're they're the big boys, and there were many British comics. Uh, but two thousand Eagle is the one that leaps to mind. Yes, yeah, um, I, I collected Eagle for quite a while. The thing that the thing, the thing that I enjoyed about two thousand though is that what we also had was punk, which meant that there is in the you know the 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 kind of the uh, when it all kicked off. There's a real kind of rawness and yes. kind of uh, blackness of the humour. It's since been quite well. It's it's there, but it's much watered down now because you know we're not like that as a culture. But at that point, there was a lot of anger, you know, and resentment against the kind of Thatcherite government. And so, you know, Judge Dredd is this brutal. You know, it's a satire. You know, it's not meant to be. We don't really want Judge Dredd. You know, however cool he is, we don't want people as judge, jury, and executioner on the streets. That's bad, you know, but he represents, you know, they're putting that political message on there. This is a warning against, you know, it, of course, jump 30 years later. And actually, he says, isn't that is it judge? Yeah, everything's wonderful because, you know, it's now part of the culture. But at the time it had that real bite and satire to it. And that's what I loved. Even as, you know, a 10 year old, I was going to get into that. It's kind of where my largely where my humor is comes from as well. Uh, is from reading those and getting those satires. There were satires of game shows and personalities appeared in, you know, um, thinly veiled. And so, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's, we had a lot, that was what we had, the edge we had over the kind of more, far more mainstream American yes, market. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. I was a bit young for, for it. So, yeah. um, and I, when I, by, used... the you would, so by the time you would have got into it, even if you got into it, yeah. all that would have diluted anyway. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's a diluted by the time yeah. I got to look at it all. Um, and I'd grown up with Marvel anyway because I, I was Spider Man all the yeah. way. But I still think it's a very worthy contender. I still my, think, yeah, it's, oh, my, I, my I still two, think yeah. it's like, wow. My 2000 AD years were probably <laughs> from about the time I was 10. Yeah. Until about the time I was thirteen, fourteen, yeah. I, I, I read it religiously for like four years yeah. before the nineteen nineties really kicked off. Um, and the way that it, I remember in the sequence that my comic book subscriptions went, Secret Wars, and I didn't really understand this at the time because um, I always lived in this world in which comic books. There were just lots of them, and every one of them would have some impossible number on it, like issue 513 or something. And that there was no, how could I get 512 comic books? I had to beg and plead with the 70p my dad 
gave me to buy this one. Imagine spending 70p 511 more times to get all of the others. Um, it, it's just not going to happen. And, you know, very quickly you learn back issues are complicated. When you get taken into a comic book shop as a kid and they've got these, like, ranks of books in bags and it's all very you know very clandestine and very mysterious you understand that you know some people value these items very highly and that it always seemed like a premium premium product hobby to me and uh, panini in the, the uk did a british rerun of uh, of the secret wars series and i did not realize in my you know youth that it was a series it was like there's a finite number of these and it's like a novel you know, you go from the beginning to the end. So I thought, well, I'll go with this as long as I can. And I did, in fact, read Dahl's story and Secret Wars 2 as well, which gets very silly and weird. But then, obviously, that ended. Uh, I remember there was a, a, a comic back then called Scream. Justin, do you remember this oh, comic? Scream. Yeah, 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 I'm Scream. Yeah, yes, um, and that was my next. Then I went yeah. on to 2000 AD, and when I left 2000 AD, I went on to Toxic. So, yes, I mean, you've kind of, by introducing 2000 AD, you've kind of introduced the realm of comics and uh, other characters. I mean, we should mention, because we mentioned Dread, Strontium Dog, Rogue Trooper. Yeah, Nemesis the Warlock, which I kind of liked. Oh, did you say Nemesis the Warlock? That was bonkers. Yeah, bonkers. Slain, Uh, of course. uh, Slain, yeah. Amazing story. So yeah, there was it was it was a, a wonderful uh, comic, and I think it was it kind of the, that kind of thing where it had like dread, and then it had other things, and you read little episodes of many different series. That's a kind of British thing. I don't think that America. I mean, America comics did that in the fifties, but they moved on to that. And, and of course, you know, you'd have very you'd have like one-off self-contained stories, the kind of future shocks and all these kind of things. Mm-hmm. Were just you know, at the, here's going writers come up. You know, here's your opportunity. It's a bit like kind of Doctor Who episodes, really. Here, you know, here's your shots. We'll just do a, you know, a four or five page spread, uh, a, a strip. Um, just kind of go for it. Whatever you, whatever you think of. Really. They had they had their own breakout characters because, of course, Dr. and Quinch were recurring yes. Future Shock characters. So yeah, that, that, yeah. But it's, it's it was that format that you bought one magazine and you got five or six stories in the one comic book. That was kind of a British thing by the 1980s. The Americans didn't really do that. I think that was a nice thing because you got one comic and you got several different episodes in it. So that was really good. Yeah. Wow. Warm, warm remembrances there. Uh, Ian, you have not had much to say for you. I can, I mean, I'm actually quite surprised that you didn't love, didn't, didn't ever read comic comic books of that nature, Ian. Did you? Well, like, I, I, did, I did collect it? Eagle. It, it was. Um... My, my brother collected them when he was of a particular age, and then he stopped collecting them, and then there was none around for me to kind of inherit. So, but there was Eagle. Eagle was hanging around. There was Eagle Annual still on a bookcase, even after my brother got rid of all his coin books. So I was aware where Eagle was, and I was aware of the story. It was like it was, it was, you know, there was a, there was a Dan Dare back in the day, and then but then they relaunched it, and it was Dan Dare of the future. It was like his descendant of the Mekon had broken out of his prison where the first Dan Dare had put him. So I, I went, I went to go, like, I'll collect Eagle, and I'll, I'll read Dan Dare, and I collect it for two years, and the Mekon didn't turn up once. Um, <laughs> Dan Dare was. Was kind of going through his nineties, just slumming it, not really sure what he's supposed to be about anymore. So I was reading the other things that are in there as well. I mean, I don't, I don't. It's it's not as like you know, 
where's the Dan Dare movie? You know, where, exactly. There's been, there was one animated series, I think, was put out a few years ago. That's just about been the size of it. Whereas, you know, uh, Judge Dredd is a, is a bit of a thing. It's only because it had an appalling movie in the 90s that spiked it, really. The problem is, you, you know, Dan Dare would require a big budget to fully justify, you know, the universe. And it's not that well-known product, you know, product it's not going to have an instant following there'll certainly be a lot of fans for it but it you know you could so easily kind of get it wrong by not capturing the british kind of nature of it that kind of the time of that where it's set so yeah yeah it's tricky you know people think of those those type of things and lump it together with kind of flash gordon uh, and although there's a lot of affection for that, it seems a bit campy and, and, you know, it's not mass market appeal, which you probably need to get for a big, huge film like that. Which is a shame, because I think you're right. I'd love to see a damn dear kind of movie. Um, um, so, Ian, what is your first item? Well, obviously, it's as I am going to seize this opportunity to once again bore you rigid by talking about Doc 2. No less than on three occasions today. To start with, we will do Tom Baker. No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> One episode. Yes. Yes, I've still got the contract here. I know I'm forbidden to mention it. Um, uh, so I'm going to open up with... I'll go for... This is kind of my weird one. I was having difficulty placing what my third one was going to be, but it was such an interesting experience. I feel like I, I just want to put it out there. Um, back in, like, I suppose it was the 90s, um, a group of us got back into doing a, a regular role-playing session on a Saturday for three hours between six and nine. And I suppose I kicked it off. But when I did role-playing, I just made up my own system and I made up my own histories and backgrounds and people just played to the things that they you know, begrudgingly forced and through these storylines I'd invented. Uh, but other guys, you know, they were more than happy to grab hold of a system and, and we'll go with that and we just alternated GMing. And it was a wonderful time to have this regular, you know, clique of people you could role-play with. Uh, and uh, one of the guys was like, well, what system do you want to do, guys? And he went through like a piloted the three systems. We, we did Vampire, The Masquerade, we tried the Cyberpunk, we had a good bash at that. And then we did Call of Cthulhu. Now, Call of Cthulhu uh, role-playing, basically your character is either going to die or go mad. Uh, that's essentially your fate. It's only a matter of time. Accept it and go with, and go with the madness. But the thing is, the introductory scenario that you comes with the book for Call of Cthulhu uh, was just such an experience because it, it's a very low in terms of the Cthulhu universe. It's quite a low grade villain that you're probably going to survive. You're only going to have your sanity nibbled at, at the edges. Um, and I forget what the actual story is called. There's a house on the hill or something, but I think we called it the Corbett Residence. And basically, it's a haunted house story um, where you know you're paranormal investigators and you're in this house trying to unravel this mystery, and weird stuff starts going down. And I suppose we're quite lucky that we did it in his grand's house, and his, his grand would not be there on the nights we would go there. So we'd be in this house all alone by ourselves, and you know we would do the candlelight whilst we were doing the story. And it's just you know it's just a ghost story, guys. You know, eventually, spoilers. You know, you kind of discover that he's, he's still animated corpses alive behind a wall in, in, in the basement. But it's just that experience of doing that story and unraveling the mystery and having the the, 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 the paranormal things go off in the house that I, I was I was on the edge of my sheet, sheet edge of my seat, trembling. Parachute. Yes, I was on the edge of my. I was yeah, trembling, trembling with, with the kind of fear and joy of this story. 
And, you know, it was kind of disappointing when you move on to the wider Cthulhu universe where you realize it is all about you just going mad because large abstract entities are shifting over and you're just getting crushed. Um, but the, the, that, that kind of experience, that introductory scenario, I, I kind of said afterwards, like, I would love to do Call of Cthulhu if you could keep it down on that kind of paranormal level. Um, yeah. where, it's, where it's just a bit of a spooky mystery that you're trying to unravel. And, you know, suspense comes from uncertainty. And, you know, in the normal Call of Cthulhu game, there is no uncertainty. You are either going to die or go mad. Um, uh, and the, the, the sort of fear of, we, we could manage, we could get through this one, guys. We just got to play it right. That level of horror... It was those those like three weeks. I think we played through that scenario. It was just so atmospheric. It's one of my best role playing experiences um, I've ever had. Uh, I, absolutely, I concur. I, I mean, I have had uh, experience with with the game, and it's probably some of the most intense experiences I've ever had. One was literally intense, and in that I used to, we used to play it when we were camping by <laughs> torchlight. Um, but it was, I think. And, and often that was kind of with, with a smaller group of people, which actually works really well for that because it adds to the kind of involvement in it. And the, But I, I'm, I'm there with you. I have been absolutely terrified when I played this game uh, to the point where it got to the stage where I was creeping out around a house, saw a shadow, beat what I assumed obviously was a thug uh, to death, turned on the light and it was an old housekeeper. Uh, this isn't the game, isn't it? Not real life we're talking about. This is this is, this is after the game when I was being spooked. Um, <laughs> no, in the game. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm totally with you. I I have been yes scared, senseless. Uh, in, in but yeah, the, the first one I, I agree with you is is pretty up there. I think as uh, as rock playing experience. Like I say, it was in his mother's his grand's house, and after you leave, and you yeah. just a kid, you walk home. We all live within walking oh, distance. Oh, yeah. But I was walking on my own at night through amber-lit streets, and it's just so mm. quiet. And you're looking yeah. at every try single and... window as you go. That, that is just... You, you, you try gaming with a torchlight in a tent. That, that'll that add to it as well to the experience. But, um, yeah, no, good good stuff. Yep. Good memories. Um, Sue, you got anything to say about... I just think it's great that we're putting some really, really, really cool role-playing game in there. <laughs> That's just yeah. Like... I think the whole Cthulhu thing, I think we should just put H.P. Lovecraft end of story in there, to be honest with you. Talk about things that have, you know, from your, as in one of the things that have been, you know, had a huge impact on culture and everything else. Yeah. He's up there, you know. Yeah, I think think if we're going to put Alice in Wonderland up there, I think we should put H.P. Lovecraft up there as well, yeah. (laughs) You know, uh, in the media that people have been milking for years in various kind of incarnations. Including, you know, even just the fact of having versions of it for endless kind of games and, you know... I mean, we've done the stuff that's similar. I mean, we've, yeah. done, we've done Haunted House games. We've done yeah. we've done things, you know, we've done Over the Edge games. And but, you know, done, you know we've done created, I guess you'd call it, what, Eldritch Horror, I suppose. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. really, he's, you know, I can't think of any examples before then, really. Yeah. Um, what was really exciting... Uh, <laughs> or to take it in a slightly uh, bizarre direction, uh, at the recent uh, Games Weekend that that, that uh, I attended, and so did you, Justin, but you weren't there at this point, uh, I played a game. They, were, they came with a game, uh, some uh, games producer, called Unspeakable Words. You know this game, Justin. No, I do. Yes. 
Uh, basically, it's a bit like Scrabble uh, in that you, or a, a sort of card game version of Scrabble. You get seven lettered cards. The letters are scored according to the number of angles in the letter. So W scores quite highly. S scores nothing. That's the kind of thing. So, and you have to make words just the same. And you get five little cuddly Cthulhu tokens that you put in front of you. These represent your sanity. After you have played your word, you must roll a 20-sided dice. And if you roll, um, I think it's over the amount of points that you've scored, yes, over that amount, then you are sane. But if you roll under, you lose sanity. Because the, the words that you are messing with are words that man was not meant to know, even if they are things like kettle and stuff like that. <laughs> um, what? The angles are wrong, I tell Yes, you. exactly, the angles are wrong. So, um, yeah, you lose a little cuddly Cthulhu. When you get down to one cuddly Cthulhu, you're allowed to put down any letters that you want in any order. Um, so it's, it's kind of meant to be like a fun sort of party game. But then somebody around the table at the beginning of this game that we played said, and what you can do is uh, have an illustrative story, and somebody else supplied. We could even try and sting our, string our sentences together to make a Cthulhu-esque story. And this is what we decided to do, and came up with one of the bizarrest Cthulhu-based <laughs> uh, Lovecraftian horror story games that that has ever existed. Because you'd get your sort of Scrabble hand, and then you'd make a word, and then you'd go, and this is the sentence, and I use this word. At one point, we we did have a Doctor Who fan at the table, and Daleks made an appearance in our Lovecraftian horror, but uh, only for one sentence. And then we're never spoken of again. Um, but what was really weird about that was that halfway through the game, somebody says, wow, this is a really good story that we've done. I don't believe this has ever happened before. And then somebody else went, yeah, I don't know where we got this story idea from. And we're like, but you said that we did that before. And they're like, no, nobody's ever done this before. So we just kind of made up this kind of storytelling role-playing game on the spot. Uh, and then they played it a few more times over the weekend. But, anyway. but yes, this is how evocative this universe is, yeah. that even a simple word game can be bent to this eldritch horror purposes. Yeah. So, yes. Good Call, choice. Yeah. Call of Cthulhu is a good choice. Yeah. Uh, I suppose I'd better uh, get on with one of my choices then. I'm just trying to pick which one to go with first. I think I shall, because it's probably not going to take us long to chew through this one. It's going to be quite an obscure choice here, everybody. I'm going to pick uh, that people should encounter in some form or another a Tom Stoppard play called The Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead. Who knows anything about this other than possibly Ian? Ooh, ooh, oh. uh, well, I've seen the film. You've uh, seen the film? Good. That's a good start. Uh, what I, yeah, I, 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 uh, well, you're obviously going to wax lyrical about it. Um, I love the format of it. It's a great, it's a great idea. Um, but you want me to... Kind of elaborate on that, or well, I'll, I'll, I'll just fill people in. If you've not encountered this, this was um, actually Tom Stoppard's, I think, his first play that he took to the Edinburgh Fringe. And the idea of this play was that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are two characters from Hamlet who, in the play of Hamlet, they kind of appear a couple of times and talk a bit, and then and then he, they, you know, they're kind of around Elsinore during the events of Hamlet, and then eventually they get killed uh, due to the toing and froing and backing and forthing of the, the Hamlet plotline. Um, and it's all sort of a misunderstanding or a mistake or whatever. And what Tom Stoppard and his buddies going to the fringe, I suppose, was 
what were they doing when the Hamlet wasn't happening? What what encounters and things would they have? And so they wrote this play, in which at one point you have Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and they're kind of in a sort of almost like Samuel Beckett waiting for Galloway, filling in time in between being in Hamlet. But then there's this kind of weird strand where the other people who are in the court of Elsinore, of course, are the players who play the king, the, the play to catch the conscience of the king. And they encounter, hanging around backstage, these players. And the third main character in Rosencrantz, Guildenstern, dead, is the player king. And they have these dialogues about... Uh, like the, the memorable part is, is this thing about um, he says oh well, we got one time we actually got permission to hang actual criminals during an execution scene um, terrible performance they, they just weren't convincing and it's this whole point about artifice and verisimilitude are simulations and that sometimes actually looking at something really happening is doesn't have as much of an emotional impact as seeing a play or a story or something about those and it draws that line so the play is about what do characters do when they're not off screen and if people the other thing is that Rosencrantz whereas Hamlet and Claudius and Gertrude and you know just about everyone dies on screen get Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are, are killed like this someone comes in and goes Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead and you're like what but we saw them and they were fine. What? And it's this idea that everybody else gets to like gush blood all over the stage and expire and say, you know, so sleep a chance to dream and oh, oh so good night, sweet prince and all this kind of stuff. Rosencrantz and Gilstern, they walk off never seen again. And it's this idea of that's really unfair. You know, everybody else gets a moment. They just get to walk off stage and then somebody says, oh, they're dead as well, by the way. Um, so it starts to talk about stuff like that. So it's like this play that exists on many levels. And, and Tom Stoppard, he wrote a lot of other plays about philosophical this and that and, and, and played with the idea of plays and played with the, one of his uh, plays, The Real Inspector Hound, is kind of like a pastiche of amateur dramatics companies doing Agatha Christie mysteries um, and stuff like that. But I don't, it's weird. It's like somebody has their greatest hit straight away because there's nothing as complex as watching a play about two characters in a play that talks about the artificiality of plays and the reality of reality and the weirdness of stories. And it's just like the key text for all of that stuff in one place. And then they made it eat. Tom Stoppard himself directed it as a film with a young Tim Roth and a young Gary Oldman. And there's a lot more visual gags in that that are not mentioned, obviously, in the script of the play. And it, it's pretty good. It's a really good film, and I would totally recommend it. Uh, of course, uh, uh, it was also famous for the uh, the questions game sequence, which you could recite by heart, Leo. At one point, yes, I could, for I did it for my A-level. Uh, uh, and I, I attempted to turn this into a game with a friend of mine, saying, you know, you, you, can't, you can't be rhetorical and all the rules that, that you put down about it. And his get-out of... He, he, basically, he would do it... He would say a statement, and then at the end of it, go, is it not so? And that, would, that was... I couldn't get him on the rules about that one. You can't do repetition. Can't do the same quest, essentially the same question twice. <laughs> so yeah, well, it, it, yes, this is one of the many games that they play to occupy time while the Hamlet and the King and stuff are doing other stuff. Yes, the game of questions. 
And they play it as the game of questions is apparently a lot like tennis. And in the film, they do it on a tennis court. So, yes, it's all very backed up visually. Have you ever encountered this film or this play? Uh, You probably would hate it, Sue. You don't (laughs) like things where people do a lot of talking for no particular reason. Yeah, sounds like something that bothered me to tears, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. I I found Hamlet a pain in the arse. So, yeah, I think this would probably drive me insane. Well, it is just, I mean... Macbeth it, I can deal with. Romeo and Juliet I can deal with. Hamlet, oh, God. You know it, what I, mean? it, it, <laughs> I like things that are like... I mean, I think this is one of the reasons, ironically, after last week, that, that I like things where the dialogue is sparky. And there was a film about uh, 2006 called Lucky Number Slevin, which is like a sort of Stoppardian gangster movie with Ben Kingsley. Fell asleep during that. Yes, well. yes, exactly. It just and unless that you can get behind people talking in that. I mean, I think the other thing that can't have failed to have missed uh, passed by Tom Stoppard is his girl Friday. The 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 sort of the that kind of dialogue delivered at a pace, going back and forth very quickly. Uh, and if you like that you and enjoy that, then that's cool. And if you don't, yeah, it would be really boring. So there we go. But uh, that that's my that's my thing, uh, which I guess we, there's not much more to say about that. It is a thing. Uh, so uh, Sue, wake up. What is your second thing? <laughs> I'm going to venture into music here. Okay. And I'm going to pick probably one of my favourite bands in the entire universe here. Right. Because I have to. I'm sorry, it's Metallica. You're going to bring out Metallica. You're going to curate. It's end Metallica. of story. Metallica. Full stop. End of story. Everything they've ever done. Don't care. Full stop. End of story. <laughs> they saved heavy metal from the 80s hair metal brigade. What more could you ever need to know? Unfortunately, the whiny buggers that are emo are winning right now, and we need another band like Metallica to step up. But. I still forgive everything else they've ever done. Well, I suppose by, Met- by Metallica, you are opening the door to the big four of uh, well, heavy metal, uh, heavy metal, Iron and Maiden, things yeah. like that. All that. But I Metallica love metal in general, but Metallica are it as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I love Maiden, I love all of it, but Metallica are the band you go to if you want metal. Um, gentlemen, uh, I, I'm. I anticipate that, that uh, two are neither, no of, you, yes, neither yeah. of you are big heavy metal fans. <laughs> well, obviously, back in the day when I had long hair, I was washing away. No, it's, uh, it's Although, not... Justin, I've got you on this one. We once, along with uh, a friend of ours, went to attend um, a Tourisass concert. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that, that, I have to say, I'm, I, I only say that I'm... Not, I'm not really a, a, a big musical person at all. Not re- I'm not really fans of music. So, um, so I've got nothing against Metallica at all, but I'm, I can't really kind of come at it with any real passion because I don't really have that kind of approach to, to music for anyone, really. So, But you uh, like the Viking Boat song? I don't know, yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, I, I have no problem with it. Uh, I, I, I can't take... I don't like the really, really kind of heavier... Uh, Thrash metal stuff, but actually heavy metal, I've got no problem with at all. Um, so yeah, you know, uh, but I can't. Yeah, I'm not going to be out of wax lyrical about it. I'm afraid because I just don't have that connection with music. And Ian, I, re- I recall uh, we've uh, sort of had this conversation before that you say that your sort of bowing out of musical topics is more to do with a lack of knowledge than anything else. What is this earth thing you speak of called music? <laughs> <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.
Um, oh dear. <laughs> so yeah, so Ian I'm, Ian I'm likes to the wrong Well Ian likes Ian likes soundtracks. Yeah. That's what we came to the conclusion of. And and did not view them as a valid musical. So he just said he didn't like anything to do with music, but he liked soundtracks. Hey, there's some great heavy metal bands that have done some great soundtracks. Oh yes, absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, I, uh, well, I, I do, I listen to these things and all I think about is this'll be this'll make a great scene in something. You know, so. Yes, well, that, well, that's the thing. I mean, to, maybe not. The thing about Metallica is that uh, I think they've sort of. Well, they've of, done the Mission Impossible soundtrack, of course. Well, they did. Yes, they did a, a, a thing for Mission Impossible too. Yeah. But I think I think the thing about Metallica is, uh, particularly when you're talking about something like this, Iron Maiden. If you look at a, like the Seventh Son of the Seventh Son album by Iron Maiden. That's like a concept album. By the way, like a... this is a man who didn't know anything about Maiden or Metallica or anything a few years ago. I proper got him into metal. So, yeah. oh, all right. <laughs> uh, no, I didn't. When before I had form, I listened to a lot of Rob Zombie and stuff. I know, like but I proper Nine got you into the proper metal. Yeah, yeah. All right, come on, all right. carry on. But that album is a concept <laughs> album, which is kind of like, I mean, while we're talking about heavy metal, of course, there is a film, yeah. Heavy Metal, based upon the French comic yeah. uh, do, have we all seen this movie the animated yeah. heavy metal movie yeah i've seen it yep yeah so mm. uh, not much heavy metal in the film heavy metal but hey you know you can't have everything um but yes i mean iron maiden is particularly responsible i think partially responsible for this idea of of the comic heavy metal because of the, their covers and their iconic yeah i mean iron maiden kind of dictated what heavy metal covers should look like for well, a long Iron time. Maiden and Judas Priest kind of yeah. made what heavy metal was for the 1980s. Yeah. I mean, Black Sabbath invented it. Iron Maiden and Judas Priest in the 80s kind of stamped it. And then hair metal came out, and then Metallica wiped the floor. Well, Metallica were famously not in either of those camps. Yeah. They were kind of like. And, and I think. That... And hence the thrash metal kind of proper metal was born out of that. I mean, I, like... think, I think the thing about it is. That when you get into American bands, uh, Metallica get a lot of flack because they did, oh yeah, their real underground stuff, and then they made a big album, and after that they were all about the money. Yeah, and I think it's very unfair to take a bunch of people who, you know, who get. I mean, apart from anything else, rockers and pop stars and anyone. But they still anyone. play absolutely extraordinarily. I mean, James Hetfield is yes. amazing. Um, Kurt's amazing. I'm sorry, they are amazing musicians and they are very talented. Get I think, over it, yeah, people. But, but I think that people's argument is that, yeah. you know, once you're doing it for the money, and it's like, well, yeah, but hang on. They All rock stars want the rock and roll lifestyle and you have to pay for that. Yeah. Um, and that's that's the thing. And, and you know... Yes, Metallica went through a period I don't period understand of... what the difference is between Metallica doing it for the money, though, or Motley Crue doing it for the money, but Motley Crue were doing it and putting drugs up their nose and shagging a load of women, and Metallica are doing it to produce more albums that are more interesting. Well, I don't... Do you get what I'm saying? It's like... It's quite a black and white as that. I'm sure they've done their, their bits. Their but I think there's also the thing of uh, some fans uh, of, this, of the whole music genre are like, well, Iron Maiden, for example... Yeah. But then Iron Maiden come from a very different philosophical place, which is that they're British. I and mean, I think Bruce Dickinson we've talked about get more nerdy yeah. if you try. We've talked about he's amazing, yes. bless him. We've talked about 2000 AD already, and I think that there's a very important component to things that are produced in Britain that become cultural sort of 
st- uh, icons or you yeah. know things that that are embraced by the culture, which is that when they start out, the people who do them, being British, and British people do this a lot, are like, this isn't going to go anywhere. Nobody's going to be interested in this. We're doing this because we like to do it and for no other reason. And, you know, 95% of the time, that's the way that it stays. And then there's that 5% where it goes absolutely bonkers. But you can't lose sight of the fact when you've come from that area where you believe in your bones, no one else is particularly going to be interested. It's just a weird thing that you do. You can't lose that. And to this day, Bruce Dickinson is like amazed, I think, that Iron Maiden are a massive band and blah, 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 all of this stuff. And he's just very grateful for that opportunity. If you're American, the American dream is to make a bunch of money doing stuff like that. And so when you start out, you go, I'm doing this because I've got the will to win and I will be at number one. It's a very different philosophical way of looking at things. So criticising people because they embrace that when they get to it seems a bit hypocritical. But hey, maybe that's just me and my weird British sensibility about these things. But as I said, you can't take away talent. You can't take away the ability. I mean, we walk. I walk down the aisle to a Metallica song. I don't care what anybody says. They are talented. Um, It's that's just. Yes, we got married to a Metallica tune. Everybody, Uh, absolutely, absolutely. a very good Metallica tune. It was as well. Yeah. It's it's who I am. It's what I am. I mean, I remember sitting there. I mean, we have to remember when I when Metallica first kind of started coming up. We were talking eighty nine, ninety. I was nine, ten years old. I wasn't old. You know what I mean? I was yeah. still a little tiddler. And I remember seeing some of those videos for One and Enter Sandman and things like that, and just being absolutely in awe of this band and thinking, yeah, that's what I. That's where I want to be. Yeah. That's 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 right. That to me is that's that's where it's at. If you get sure. what I mean. And I've never ever backed down from that. I listen to a variety of music and always have done. I'm eclectic in my music taste. I love everything. Mozart's a morbid angel. Don't care. Everything in between. Um, but there's certain bands that will always be in my heart, and Metallica's one of them. It's yeah. memories. It's 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 childhood memories. It's Things that are important to me, it's, it's, and, you know, there's certain songs, I mean, The Unforgiven in particular, I've always said is my song, it'll always remind me of my life and end of story. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, Metallica goes up there for me because a world without Metallica for me is, is just, may as well blow it up now. So, <laughs> so Good choice. Yeah. So, yeah, so I mean, basically, uh, Metallica in in specific, yeah. but heavy metal as a whole, which I think is, and I would like to say yeah, that heavy metal. I mean, <clears throat> seriously, I still love my maid, and I still love, you know, I lo- I yeah. love all metal, but yeah. For science, I would say that for science fiction, fantasy, horror fans. Heavy metal is the go-to music genre. I mean, you know, uh, again, coming back to Iron Maiden, Bruce Dickinson has written entire 13-minute epics about Alexander the Great in yeah. great historical detail. Well, and there's whatnot. the famous and, line, we went to see Maiden live, and there was the famous line, wasn't there, about if metalheads ruled the world. There'd be a lot more songs about death, but nobody would actually die. There you go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, that's, and that's the truth. That's the way it is with me- the metal world. We, so talk, let, we, we sing a good song about death, us, but we, we're quite happy to let the world go. Let us it. throw it back over to um, Justin. Justin yeah. and see okay. what his next choice is. Well, okay, so um, we've kind of touched on this already, but um, uh, there's a little book that I got hold of 
um, I was about 11, I think, at the time, or 12, called Warlock of Firetop Mountain. Uh, uh-huh. And uh, if there is such a thing as a gateway drug for role-playing, this is it for me. <laughs> um, this is the, um, so this is, uh, for those of you who remember, um, a, a game book. Um, so, you know, you put your you put yourself in the in the role of an adventurer, and as you're reading through the book, you get choices. You know, what, uh, do you go down this passageway and die instantly, or do you go down this passageway and almost die instantly? Um, <laughs> and you roll dice. You know, you fight monsters, and you know it's interactive. Okay, and and this was uh, I'm not sure about the chronology of when such things were born in, in game book form. But for me, it certainly was the first thing I'd ever even heard of anything like this before, and it blew my mind, okay? Um, okay, looking back, it's not the best game book on the back. It was the first one by them, okay? But uh, this was, this. I'm like, oh my God, here's something where my imagination went went mad. I have choices here. I can, I'm suddenly the, the hero of this book. And from that, Spiraled an obsession that has lasted, you know, um, a long time, <laughs> over 30 years. Um, so yeah, it was. My friends were talking about it. We we formed together little groups. From that came role playing because you know it was like, well, you know, you can. It's kind of this thing that I've heard about. It's like this, but you don't have a book. You kind of well, you kind of make the whole thing up. Someone makes it up, and you know, from there on. You know, my life was doomed. Uh, <laughs> just in reality, I'm sorry. You know, that took a back seat. You know, that wasn't coming back for some time. So, so yeah. So this was just, you know, a, a pivotal moment in my in my young kind of adolescent life. It was like, oh my god, here I am with all my insecurities, and in this format, I'm someone else. I'm taken away. I'm, you know, okay. I might be dying quite a lot in various incarnations in these books. Um, but still, you know, I'm succeeding. I'm getting the treasure eventually. Uh, okay, I might need to have my thumb on the page and go and rewind time occasionally. Um, we've all done it. Or oh, I think I rolled a six on that occasion. But you know, it's, the point is that it was it was escapism, like beyond anything I'd experienced in in film or anything. This was, oh my God, this is a medium. This is mine. I this is and and also it was a you know the outcast in me. Um, this was something that most people didn't get, you know. So again, it was that kind of forming long, very long relationships with people that shared that kind of hobby. So it was, yeah, it was absolutely instrumental in me as a person, kind of, at that point. I did. A, uh, well, did you play? Did you do game books? I did do game books. My, my brother I collected a few, so I had I quite, I quite a collection of Hamidan. Thing is, there was such a commitment of time. That getting through a book to the end was quite a thing for me. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I used to like. You had so much time this point in because I didn't, so I had plenty of time for game books. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, you, you try and draw maps as you go, you try and make notes on the matrix yeah, as you go, and as you say, you thumb through it, you try every path yeah. and go for the one that's yeah. most convenient. The really horrible ones are the books where it trides to one path and it trides to the path, and at both points, you have options there as well. It's like, oh my god, I need yeah. post it notes now to have the bookmarks. Um, <laughs> One that sticks in my mind even to this day was kind of a Car, War, Car, Car Wars based universe. Oh, okay. And, you know, when it came uh, to combat, it's like, well, I either roll dice and I lose and die, but what did I do then exactly? So I never, never did the fight. I always won every fight I challenged to. 
But uh, it was it was really disappointing ultimately in the end because I finally managed to get my tanker full of fuel to the nice city I was trying to get to. But I'd taken this sidestep where I walked around this deserted city for a while and a homeless guy thrown a rat at me. And apparently, if I'd taken that path, it means I have the plague and so die just before I reach the city. I think that's really miffed and slightly arbitrary, actually, because it punished me for exploration, you know? So I had to, like... There were, there were some books that were better than others. The, the, um, the Fighter Fantasy books, which, which is kind of pretty much mainstream fantasy episode, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, completely self-contained, were a lot, there's a lot of death in that. You know, you would, you would. There was a lot of arbitrary. You know, oh my God, there's a, you know, a, suddenly an alligator jumps at you and bites you in half. You're dead. Start again because you just you pick the wrong turn. Um, but the, I mean, the books that I was really into were the Lone Wolf books. They were kind of the thing that I got obsessed with and loved because they had an ongoing story and there were less arbitrary deaths in those. There was a bit more like if you made the right choices, you had a sense of. If you made the wrong choices, you know, this was going to go bad for you and there were going to be repercussions. There were random events, of course, but but they because it was a character that was ongoing, they were less likely just to bump you off at every occasion. It was more about telling a story that kind of grew, grew over, you know, 20, 25, 28 books, you know, so that you kind of, yeah, you, it was the experience of, of reading it and immersing yourselves in those. And being a contiguous character of the series, that sounds fascinating. But, um... you not... Not to, yeah, you didn't dabble in Lone Wolf. I had a few oh, Lone Jackson. Wolf ones. Yeah, I, I had a few Lone Wolf ones, but the problem with that was, I mean, how many were there in the end? Uh, well, they, they, they finished up to 28, uh, I think yes. making them, so it's going on. So. I, I had to get my game books because I couldn't buy them new. <laughs> Far too expensive. Yeah. So the only place I could get game books, and it, there was a relatively plentiful supply of these, uh, during the time when they were big, because of course there were people who were buying them, playing them, and then going, "Well, that's the end of that then," because they're hardly deathless prose. So there was a second-hand bookshop called Keegan's in Reading, where my dad would buy them for me at ATP a, a stop. But there's no way I could do a series that way. But the only series that I ever seriously committed to playing and did buy, in fact, a few of the volumes firsthand was a volume, uh, an eight-volume set called Grail Quest by oh, J. H. Brennan. Um, which uh, introduced the new innovation uh, at the time into role-playing books of having humorous, uh, humorous asides yes. and, uh, and and a sort of tongue-in-cheek approach to the whole sort of fighting fantasy sort of yeah. uh, thing. Um, yeah, I, I used to used to love them. Uh, read loads of them. Really, I mean, really hard to write. Uh, that's that's what I discovered in latter years, you know. Tried? Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I wrote a I wrote a computer program that would right. allow you to to write them um, because you'd write a paragraph and then say, well, this leads to sections, this, that, and the other, well, and you, then you, you even did straight up novels yourself, as I recall. Sorry, was even that? you even tried to do straight up stories because I remember because I I played through some of them with you. You would read them to me, and I would make choices. Okay, I don't remember that. There was one instance I remember because there was, there was kind of a karmic thing about it, and there was a there was a dog which was vicious, which was chained to the wall, and it was it was a morality test about whether the player would kill the dog. In which case, the dog would go limp, and the chain would retract, and it would trigger a bomb, and the entire space station would blow up. But of course, I tried the humane route of well, I'll stun the dog with my ray gun on stun then 
that's very humane. No one's got killed. Space station still blows up. So there we go. Yes. Okay. Fair enough. Um, I don't really. Always kind of. Yeah, always kind of into this stuff. Uh, yeah, but it's, I mean, the really the problem with them is because you don't know what people have seen and what they haven't seen yet. So every section has to be written in a way where... I mean, there are certain phases where you say, well, this is one location, but you don't know what order they're going to deliver. So then you would get segments where it go, have you seen anything like this before, vaguely? If so, turn to this section. <laughs> it's always um, bad when you've got to put those in. If you did that in this section, you'd go to this number. If you did that, go to this number. That's oh. always bad. And I always find that you want to go left or right is a bad choice as well. It's, it's, it's meaningless. Uh, so, yeah. but a moral choice, like maybe you're king of a land and someone brings you in to judge them, and you know there's three possible judgments you could hand down this person. That's a fascinating choose your inventor choice. How do you rule as a king, and what repercussions yeah. do they have later? But yeah. um, some did that, but you know they 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 like a lot of them were on the very just let's survive uh, kind of thing. But they did some really kind of crazy stuff with them. There was a two player set where you had like not only were you know you had to work out what was going on. You also, at certain points, had to know whether you were both there or not. And there were all kind of mechanisms in there, like you'd have to deduct a certain number if if you were together, or you had to add this, that, and the other. They did it with the single players as well. Um, so they, there was various ways they tried to get around the kind of the problems and, you know, secret things. Uh, you used to get this with the Fighting Fantasy quite a lot, where you were like, well, if you know this clue, if you ever get a number 144, then add 20 to it. Or if you ever have a number divisible by this number, then add, the, you know, it kind of got crazy, really. I think you're, you're crying out for computers by that stage. And frankly, yes. you know, text adventure game computers. Just turn left and die. But, but yeah, the, the format of the book. There was even the, um, these books called Combat Heroes, which were written by the same guy who did the Lone Wolf books. And they actually had, they were illustrated and you were going around a maze, and that, this was this was like basically this had to be a computer game. But they, you know, they, but you basically saw a little picture of this corridor, and you go left, and whatever the person was, they'd tell you a number, and then you'd look at that, and you might see the back of them, and then you'd fire at them. Oh my god, my god, you know, so much easier on a computer game. But they were yes. desperate to keep it up with the book format. You know, this is going to get into the 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 end of the golden age of such things. No well, one told me how to do maths. It got yeah. supplanted by the uh, point-and-click adventure, of course, yeah. and uh, and now they are merely nostalgia pieces. Although they are still some no, things get still reprinted. There's a lot of love. For them. Day, yes, there's yes. a lot of love for them, and they have been reprinted. Um, you know, but in fact, what they've done now, which I've got a couple of them, they've put them on. Uh, they've changed the format slightly and put them as apps because you know a tablet format is actually very conducive to that kind of thing. So you can actually turn the pages. You can have the dice roll for you. Um, or some of them are a little bit more elaborate and actually, you know, make them more of a game. So they kind of they've, they've, they've moved on to the natural the evolution of such things uh, in the new technology, which makes sense. You know. Fair enough. Uh, I don't suppose you've got any uh, warm memories of these. <laughs> I picked one up once when I was about eight or nine, something like that. When oh, I do this, I do this, do oh, I'm dead. Oh, sod that, never picked another one again. <laughs> I think that was my experience. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of the point, though. Unfortunately, that is the point. You die a lot, so you <laughs> found every single room. In I am, the, I am the, probably the most impatient person on the planet, yes. and I am—I um, was even more impatient when I was younger than I am now. I was much more like, Aah! and yeah. finding myself dying every other page. Just yeah, no, so it's not your thing. Though. Yeah, so I was that's like, forget this. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, uh, Ian, uh, your next choice. Well, I've talked about this in the past, but I suppose it's good for another go. Doctor Who. No. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, le- the Legacy of Kane video game series. I've talked about this in the past. Has anyone, no Leo's, been made to suffer it? Justin, who ever played any of the games from Legacy of Kane? Uh, I don't think I have actually. No, I don't think I have. Okay. Well, I know about. Yeah. I've never played them. Oh, well, I came in. I have. S- you have? Probably. Really? I have, probably. You yeah. probably played Soul Reaver. You're quite right. I was a massive, massive gamer girl. And I sat with her pl- playing them occasionally back in the day, yeah. Back in the day. Yeah. What's it all about? Well, it's about vampires and ultimately paradoxes, time travel, ancient gods, and fate, destiny, and free will. Also, swords that eat your soul. Um, so, where to begin with all this? I suppose I should begin with the first game, because no one knows anything about this. So I'm just going to rattle on until my winder runs out, and then someone else can have a go. Okay, so the first game was made by uh, Silicon Knights and Dennis Danak, who is the guy also responsible for Eternal Darkness. At the beginning of the game, you're a nobleman in the fantasy world of Nosgoth, and you're killed by bandits and resurrected as, as, a, as a vampire by the necromancer Mortalius. And off you go to claim vengeance on the people who killed you, which you do fairly quickly. And, and there's an emotional arc to the character, which is, you know, first of all, he's kind of revulsed by his undead nature, but soon comes to embrace the power that has given him. And he's, he's pointed towards the Pillars of Nosgoth, which are central locations of the whole kind of video game franchise. And this is this marble dais in a field with these marble pillars, nine of them stretching up infinitely into the sky. And they kind of hold the elements of the world together and that the nine pillars each have a different facet to it. Claiming your vengeance, you just killed instruments of your murder. You will kill because the world has been corrupted. The world has been corrupted because the guardians who are supposed to... You know, the, each pillar has a guardian who kind of fulfills the functions the pillar is supposed to do. Well, the balanced guardian of Ariel has been murdered by someone we don't know who. But they, uh, her lover was Napraptor, the guardian of the mind, who has been driven insane by grief. And so he's used his powers of the mind to attack all the other guardians and drive them mad. So you're going to have to go out and hunt down all the other guardians. Twist, and the end of the tale is that you were supposed to be Ariel's replacement as the balanced guardian, but you are corrupted. So the world cannot heal whilst you are alive. So the player's choice is either kill themselves or embrace their corruption and the entire world will be ruined and the pillars will be shattered. Move on to Soul Reaver, which takes up the ending where you decide to be a complete bastard and rule the world as a vampire god. Yes! Cain goes out, conquers all the human kingdoms, this is the backstory, he's conquered all the human kingdoms and he has uh, six sun vampires has risen and these vampire sons have in turn have their own legions and his first son is Raziel. Well, vampires evolve over time, but Cain is always the most senior vampire. He's the most advanced until Raziel evolves wings before Cain does. So Cain, in a rather awesome intramatic cinema sequence, rips off Raziel's wings and throws him in the abyss to die forever. You are risen by the Elder God. The Elder God, this is, this is how the convoluted the series goes, the Elder God is opposed to vampires because vampires are immortal. The Elder God feeds off the souls of mortal beings by spinning them in what's known as the Wheel of Fate. And so you go out for revenge and you start killing each of your brothers one by one in this epic grudge match, slowly working your way back towards Cain. And then the game stops. 
because you don't actually finish your great vengeance quest. They run out of time while making the game and essentially hack sword off the last quarter. So you've killed four of your brothers, there's one left, and so is Kane. And for years, I was just obsessed by this. How's the story gonna end? I went to forums, I read fan fiction, there was fan art, I was I was all over the speculation about where this was going to go. The strange thing is, when, when Story of the Two eventually came out, it's quite clear they had to rethink of, we well, just can't kill Kane and end the story. So they had a complete twist where Kane is not the bad guy, the Elder God is the bad guy. Kane, remember, was corrupted as a child, so he's completely innocent in his whole kind of, I've just doomed the world thing. There's another force going on here. And so Raziel must go on a hero's quest and discovers there was an ancient race of vampires who originally built the pillars. And then, of course, also, another important backstory, Raziel's uh, famous weapon is the, is the Soul Reaver. This used to be Kane's blade, but when Kane tried to kill Raziel with the Soul Reaver, it shattered, releasing a ghost blade which attacked itself to Raziel. Raziel learns that the soul-eating blade he is carrying is, in fact, his own soul. Because at some point in the future, he travels back in the past and gets trapped in the blade, becoming the soul-devouring wraith. And this is a fate you cannot escape. And for the rest of the series, he's trying to find some way to avoid his terrible fate whilst confronting all the people who are opposing him. Meanwhile, you've changed history due to the various paradoxes going on, allowing for uh, Blood Omen 2 to come out, where your younger Kane now goes through a completely different series of events, fighting creatures from another dimension. Now then, of course, there's uh, Soul Re- and then there was Legacy Kane Defiance, where Kane and Raziel come together and finally start fighting back against the Elder God. Uh, but then Raziel has to trap himself in the Soul Reaver Blade, completing his destiny to give Kane the ultimate weapon to go fight the Elder God, and then there's not another game, because they didn't make the sixth form to wrap it all up. Uh, they <laughs> nearly did one a few years ago, which would have taken in a completely different direction, but that got cancelled quite late in production. And as you can see, it's just this really epic, convoluted, complicated storyline of paradoxes, vampires, and uh, it's about destiny and free will, about how there is no destiny. Ian, if we manage to somehow <laughs> remove from existence, you're still doomed, aren't you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, basically. I mean, I played the first three. Yes. And I remember a lot of wandering around things coming at you like zombie monsters and things coming at you yes. and killing them and you, you you have to switch between vampire power and things and you go so you've got this like thing that you turn off and things go a bit green coloured and yes you know. Raz- Raziel is is a, a yes. wraith he manifests himself in the material world but really he's a spectral yeah. being of the spectral world a spectral yeah. world is a twisted uh, version of our own world uh, where there is no time and it's full of spirits and yeah. other they, so you've got things that are like zombie things and you turn things you turn the spectral realm on and off and I remember all of that but yeah I, I kind of got a bit fed up with them well it has to be it. said when I played Story of a 2 it was a shock because I was expecting a continuation of my story and I'd read lots of fan fiction and I'd been quite dismissive about it and suddenly I get to Story of a 2 and it's writing itself like it's a fanfic it is so you know self-referencing yeah. and so intertwined and all the characters suddenly have more and more significance as each each uh, episode adds more to the mythology that it gets ridiculous that the guy who originally was just like he's one of the elder vampires became oh he was the first vampires of the human race oh he's also the vampire that first forged the soul weaver blade you know each story would just give him more and more significant stuff to do it needed to expand out and have a whole host of new characters and needed to do other things like that but in, in terms of something that was just so convoluted that only I could understand it because I played all the previous games it was freaking awesome um, so there we go <laughs> Yeah, well, I remember it being quite a good game, but I just there, there is... I got fed up to the back teeth of it. So. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that that Fox's writers quite often, particularly writers of fantasy, is that magic yeah. needs rules. Yeah. Well, games have rules. 
And that's the thing. When a game designer goes, I want to write a fantasy game, they have to write, well, there's a token here, and if you do this, they f- approach it like a, a computer programmer, obviously, thinking this is algebra, and this allows that, and it's total magical thinking that you make inside the computer, which is great, except for the fact that one thing that writers who have managed to work all this out and come up with world-building rules and magic, they there was always a danger coming back to Alice in Wonderland, that you are going to go down the rabbit hole yeah. and that you circle round and round this numinous kind of mystery, round and round, and you can't escape its gravitational pull. And, you know, Soul Reaver is one of those, but we talked obviously a couple of weeks ago about Metal Gear Solid, which does the same sort of job on political sort of science fiction, military kind of techno thrillers, in like the same yes. thing where circles round and round the drain of its own You, you sit back and you mythology. think about Revolver Ocelot and go, I've no idea who this guy is loyal to. Basically, whoever the bad guy is each week, he's the right-hand man and he's secretly betraying them for somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the 24, uh, the 24 rule that when Jack Bauer has kicked enough ass to put the terrorists away, one final henchman is seen running, you know, or sitting in a cafe or he's got away somehow and he picks up a mobile phone because it's ringing and answers the phone to the person who was really responsible every time. And he's like, wait a second, hang on. But if that means that, you know, by season six, the things that happened in season one are actually the responsibility of a shell corporation, of a thing that was... And you're just like, what the hell is going on? And uh, currently, Assassin's Creed is undergoing the same tortuous when we need another sequel. So you've got Assassins, and you've got Templars, and you've got a modern-day plotline, and you've got the past plotline, and you've got characters whose whose fates interweave, and oh, gosh, it's all... Yes, so, uh, yes, I think that the term that we're looking for with these tortuous sagas of uh, epic proportion is that they have a tendency to disappear up their own rabbit hole. Yes. <laughs> but yes, a fine uh, a fine example there. Uh, all of these uh, games are now available for the PC on GOG or for the old console of your choice. But yeah, you, it, they're not they're not something that's currently uh, in the in the in well, public eye. Yeah. It's, it's... Is they did look very beautiful. Yes. They do. They still look very nice. Same as Assassin's Creed. They've got this kind of visual look about them the buildings look very nice and everything looked nice so yeah i think they just whenever someone puts together a list of like top game top list of video game series that need to come back legacy kane is usually included fairly high on the list yeah. it does have some diehards out there definitely yeah. it has it come to me again yes, it has come to me again this is a very weird one that people are going to be, uh, but uh, you'll see what's going. Your very weird. So how well, much weirder can it get? This is a weird thing. Well, because I was thinking of items that say something, and I, in order to get an entire atmospheric genre type thing into the the list, I am going to put in the steampunk tarot, which simultaneously covers the basis of steampunk and tarot, and tarot cards, cards, you see, <laughs> and therefore uh, it's, it's a double word score or whatever you want to talk about. <laughs> and this means that you don't necessarily have to have experienced the actual set of cards that we're talking about. You only have to experience either tarot cards or steampunk or both. 
and then the two come together in a in a sort of this one locus. But the reasons behind this are I've always been fascinated by tarot cards as a whole, cards with images on them, flash cards. Um, and I'd like to say that there was some mystical component to this. But after much soul searching and many years of wondering about this and inventing a game called No Dice with these people here because we didn't want to use dice. And then people say, well, what's the difference? Dice have numbers on them. Cards have numbers on them. Really, what's the big deal? And the eventual conclusion comes to that you can play with cards without a table while you're sat on a sofa enjoying a soft beverage. Whereas dice, you do need a table and a cup and you need to crane your neck over to look at them and they go clankety-clankety. And that's, you know, tarot dice wouldn't really work. And, And it's this idea of things being on cards. I mean, I suppose, really, it's that whole phenomenon like panini stickers and baseball cards and the idea of having a collection of small cards with images or whatever on them that mean something and uh, tarot has always been mysterious to the the ends that its beginnings if you look into the history of tarot people basically go i don't know nobody knows nobody knows why these ones or where they came from they've got some ideas but nobody really knows and that's kind of interesting and and they're very evocative they're very useful as inspirations for writing and and ideas to come up with that um, and as to why steampunk, well, who doesn't like steampunk, really? Uh, what's delightful for me about steampunk is that you can draw a steampunk picture or you can you can evoke the spirit of steampunk very easily in images. But when it comes to steampunk, I don't think anyone to this day, the, the prize, the brass ring for the production of a steampunk thing that is the definitive steampunk this is what steampunk is, is still yet to be done, I, that, in my opinion, unless anyone's got any other ideas. So uh, thoughts on these things? Sue, you haven't said anything in a while, I suppose. <laughs> I did a whole tarot podcast about what I feel about tarot, so I'm not going to go there. They can go yeah, and look yeah, up yeah. the tarot podcast if they want to know what I feel about that. Steampunk's an interesting one because it's very gothic, but it's also very Victoriana, which I also love. You know what I mean? I kind of, again, back to the whole Alice in Wonderland thing, it's very Victoriana, which I very much love. So, yeah, I kind of like the whole steampunk thing, and I kind of like the whole, you know, Zeppelins in the sky over Victorian England kind of thing. I kind of, I think it's kind of cool. I kind of like the whole, I like the imagery of steampunk. More so than the well, this is the thing. I don't think anyone's ever managed to tie down what the steampunk story is yet. I like the imagery of steampunk. I like the idea of you know hats with goggles on them, and you know I like that. I think. Well, I mean, I guess it's a genre in which the key texts are, you know, fifty thousand leagues under the or twenty thousand leagues under the sea. For the for the action adventure, and then you throw in. Possibly a bit of fantasy, but largely, you know, um, tech, you know, uh, uh, kind of Heath Robertson type devices, you know, kind of a technology that shouldn't exist then. So, so kind of crazy steam powered things. Yeah. And the more you pump into that, you know, the more kind of, you know, you can go kind of down a almost kind of like a futuristic kind of thing going on there, but, but just, you know, with Victorian hats and stuff. So, I mean, there's, there's kind of a, 
there's a there's a guy. There isn't maybe there isn't one definitive steampunk thing. There are just there are just it's just a scale. At one end you've got Sherlock Holmes with a little bit of fantasy and a little bit of kind of intrigue and occultness, and then the other end you've got you know um, giant steampunk robots fighting each other. But I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me is if I think about a steampunk story, so there's the stories that actually come across that the, these I- exemplify steampunkness in a story are things like hg wells the time machine hg wells first man in the moon hg wells war of the worlds jules yeah. verne stuff all of these things which were written at the time as actual science fiction of the time yeah. but when you think about it if you actually were to mount a production of these things i mean the, the film uh, the george powell film of uh, the time machine that's a steampunk kind of ethic because yeah. the time machine object itself is steampunk but it's interesting that in the modern era we can't capture the thing that they were doing as a contemporary and non-ironic thing. Well, that's, that's fascinating. We tend to we tend to kind of stereotype the Victorian era more, whereas at the time it was just was, what was happening. All tall hats, and and it's a bit later actually. All that stuff is kind of kind of late nineteen nine. I mean, it's Victorian, but it's late Victorian. Yeah. Whereas our image of steampunk is kind of earlier Victorian with the idea of these kind of zeppelins and stuff it's kind of a more romantic nature whereas though that kind of those kind of stories um yeah they're kind of science they were just contemporary science fiction um but you know obviously our interpretation of science fiction now is different to to that image so we romanticize it more i think you know add more fantasy add more kind of craziness to it whereas actually uh yeah i mean you know uh, spiritually anything else you could say yes they are steampunk but it doesn't quite feel right to call them that Ian steampunk discuss uh, I've never really done steampunk I've only really known it as a role playing kind of environment uh, it's an interesting kind of subgenre, I suppose but it's like a what is this defining thing about it other than it's like an alternate universe of Victoriana and technology uh, and as for tarot, this, these are infinitely fascinating cards because they're so evocative. Uh, and you know, each one has its own story and personality to it as well. And so, uh, yeah, I can see why you would find that fascinating. As we said in our Christmas Indulgences show, uh, it's, if something has a good mythology to it, it's always very fascinating and you can really get hooked if you're deeply into it. But, yeah, I've never really had any experiences of, of, of steampunk. I've seen a few films that could technically be called steampunk, but um, other than that, no. Well, I, I think that's what it is. I think they sort of on the two sides, uh, tarot kind of comes round and round in circles. And, and then. You see, tarot's very Victoriana as well, which is very interesting because tarot kind of is very a Victorian idea of sitting around doing seances and reading tarot cards. Oh, yeah. And, and then to put the on tarot. But there's, yeah, but the, I mean, what I was going to say is that it's there's... It's that whole macabreness yeah. of, and the gothicness of, you know, tarot cards. Again, with the gothicness yeah. and the macabreness of steampunk. But, but tarot kind of goes a bit further. There's um, the, 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 the uh, oft-mentioned uh, and celebrated 
story, the Amber series uh, by Roger Lasney starts with yeah. an idea of cards and the cards in Amber and the drawing of the cards uh, as a skill and a discipline uh, that the princes of the universe indulge within. It is the starting point for the entire madness that follows and slowly uh, incoherently bubbles away in Roger Zelazny's mind. And it's that, yeah, I mean, again, people are fascinated with the idea of small iconographic images placed on little pieces of card. And, and you know, tarot is just one of those things. I mean, you know, when in pop culture, uh, the, the, the you know, they may as well just produce decks of the death card because it's like they want to say something bad's going to happen to the heroes. Introduce a tarot card reader and look, oh, it's the death card. And yet death doesn't mean anything no, bad. No, we, we, yes. And then tarot readers have to go, it's of not course, about death. It's... But of course, and during the Victorian era, there was a huge resurgence in kind of spirituality. Yeah. You know, people were looking for answers. Everything was kind of quite scientific, it's I suppose. It's really, really they were so very, 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 very church-going, and yeah. yet they were very, very spiritual, the Victorians. Oh, they, they, it was very odd. The, the, last, the last point in that triangle is that they also believed... Because the thing is that the Victorians had a societal belief that following Isaac Newton's cracking of that whole gravity business you know, back in the Age of Enlightenment, we would soon know everything and be able to do everything. Until Einstein came along, even a while after Einstein was on the scene, people kind of believed we're nearly at the end of, of everything. We would nearly unlock every secret. And then somebody went and discovered subatomic particles, and we're here today. Um, you know, it just... But at that point, we didn't know anything about all that. So we believed... We were within inches of knowing everything, knowing the mind of God, which is kind of strange and blasphemous and weird. Yeah. And that's where all the mysticism well, you know. And then that's the weird thing about it all. They were very, very, very much church-going, God-faring people who were very blasphemous and very much... It was very odd, the Victorian age. Very odd. They were obsessed with death and the idea of the macabre and, you know... Know, any spirituality, society. and yet at the same time they're all very pious. And, any you know. society that is, you know, has such kind of restrictions in society is going to feed this kind of underbelly of thought, and you know, so it's not really that surprising that people it's, were thinking yeah. about kind of strange things when they were living in a society that was so structured with class, and you know, everything was conformed. You had your place; you could only do certain things. You had restrictive rights. So therefore, they imagine that's not it's not a coincidence that we have the birth of science fiction during this time. When yes. people are opening themselves up, they're looking for an escape, they're looking for something else. So yes. I briefly say that I have to ha actually have a problem <laughs> in that I have to go and play tennis and I didn't realise this was gonna turn into a it's awesome, but it's an epic it's an well, epic well, let's just do your let us do your last thing then, Justin. Um I really this is kind of represents me kind of falling in love with cinema really and beginning to look at understanding it so when i went to uh when i studied kind of film studies we looked at scissors and cane uh in great detail and i absolutely fell in love with not so much you know there have been there'd be better films but certainly i began to understand this was the first time i could look at a film and i could understand what was going on what the director was trying to do and the mechanisms of that and being utterly fascinated at, by how they would achieve this and the spectacle of it, you know, the kind of construction 
you know, this was the first time I understood the idea of uh, a kind of an auteur um, at work here. This was someone who was a craftsman putting together this kind of fil film. Um, so yeah, I was just for a, for a short period kind of completely obsessed with it and kind of looked at it scene by scene um, in, in detail. So uh, there have there been better films? Uh, yeah, I mean, I certainly I've looked at it recently, but still at the time it was kind of instrumental for me to getting hooked on film and looking at it into not just games, this is great, there's spaceships and everything else actually. It was a gateway for me for other films. So from there I went into Hitchcock um, and uh, film noir as well, kind of, they were, I mean, they were, they were, which I kind of love. Um, so this was the starting point for me. This was looking at film in a different way and in depth. And so it was kind of fueling that aspect of my personality. Ian, have you seen Citizen Kane? Um, I attempted to once and uh, I didn't stop watching it because I thought it was rubbish. I just kind of like, oh, I've watched a bit of it, I'll come back to it later, and then <clears throat> time went out and had to be returned to the video library. <clears throat> Essentially what happened. I mean, uh, you, you study film courses, and this in Kane comes up because it is just one of those very innovative films that changed. It was very important for people who made films, I think, more than people who watched films at the time because of just how, how technically brilliant it was for the era. And, you know, it, worth bearing in mind, uh, Orson Welles does this when he's 20, 26 years old. Uh, yep. The early genius. It's, it's kind of sad when geniuses peak very early. Um, but, uh, yes, it's, it is, you know, when Earth is doomed and we're building the satellite that will send our culture out into space for prosperity, Citizen Kane is going to be on there, isn't it? Um, yes, I mean, I, I have not studied it enough. I've not watched uh, with enough interest documentaries that have been on about it. And, you know, I'm, I'm quite happy to, like, you know, I'm not going to judge it as a film because it's just, it's just kind of one of those things you just have to look at and examine it and look at it from different angles and study it like it's art because it, it virtually is. Yeah, well, I think that the thing about it is that, that it suffers from a problem that was later encountered by The Matrix in that, People watch films now and they go, oh, that's a film. And they recognise a film in cinema. And the lang so, so the so-called language of film, like you understand uh, when you've watched enough films what certain things mean. Like, you know, you have a shot of the outside of a building and then you cut to a room that looks like it's inside that building and two people having a conversation. And you understand from that that these two people are having the conversation inside the building and stuff like that. You know, these are the basic building blocks of telling a story visually in a sequence of moving images. Well, Citizen Kane invented round about 70% of what we now know of as film. The only problem with that is that if you were born 40 years after the fact and then you watch it, you go, yeah, that's a film. I don't understand why it, everyone thinks it's such a big one. It's like, yes, there's a line in the sand. All the films before Citizen Kane, they don't look like what you'd recognise as a film. You watch them and there's awkward bits and there's bits where they don't really know how to tell you stuff and there's bits where the camera isn't allowed to do that or they haven't thought of moving a camera like that or of doing stuff, you know, like, you know, uh, Orson Welles building these huge mechanical sets so that he could do a zoom and the set will uh, recede behind the person and all of this kind of stuff where he's trying to make the camera move or swoop or do something that we recognise and we've seen it done over and over again up until that point it was never done 
And so people went to see that movie and had their minds blown because the movie did things that no movie before it had ever done. Unfortunately, every movie following that movie did it over and over and over to the point where it is basically part of the background noise of cinema. And so it's you have to look at it in that context of, yeah, you know how this film is made before this? They didn't make them like that. They didn't make them anything like that. They didn't even know you could make them like that. And that's what Orson Welles gave us was cinema as we know it right now. So that's that's kind of the way it is. Have you watched it? Yeah, I have, um, but a very long time ago. I think it's historically, as you said, a very important film for that reason. I think it's a film that I'm not sure its plot stands up for anything else. No. You get what I mean? It's it's not really the best plotted film or any of those kind of things, but it's it definitely has its reasons to stand up there in in yeah, film I... genre. It's very noir though, again, and yes. it's, it's not my genre of film. So to me, it was again. I do. I do have to say there is a certain point at which yeah. uh, that is one thing that is actually. Uh, I'm not sure whether the harmful is the right word, but there is a sort of thing where you get a filmmaker. I'm thinking Martin Scorsese, who just mm-hmm. made Wolf of Wall Street, and th- they say, "Well, I'm making a movie that is about a subject, e.g., the subject in this being the the Leonardo DiCaprio character," and. The, the story in terms of words, scenes, must inform my visual language. And the, I am trying to send people away with a feeling about the subject of this movie. Therefore, the written part of it and the story, the, the, the ins and outs of the plot, aren't maybe as important as the, the you know, my, what I'm doing as the director or to director. And I think there's a real problem in that sometimes. In fact, I think that's definitely what Citizen Kane is. It's definitely, you know, there's definitely like a whole plot missing. But, you know, I don't think it's a bad film. It's not my type of film. I don't think it's ever going to be my type of film, but I respect what it is. No, as, as someone who's obsessed with stories, I yeah. can certainly... Yeah. Uh, but I respect what it is. As a visual piece of art form, I certainly respect what it is. It's, as you said, it as an historical piece of this is the way films are now crafted because of this piece of film. Yeah, I can respect it 100%. So I, I'm thinking that Justin has to retire at this point from the uh, thing. So once again, when we're doing one of these epics, you're going to have a bit of this that is, you're not going to know. What have we picked? It's a mystery. So uh, we shall say goodbye to Justin at this stage. And... Um, and, and yes, that that will be. Go and uh, have fun playing go, tennis. Go and have fun. Yes, play. Try and introduce an element of questions. You hit the ball, you have to ask a question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'll probably end up almost killing myself. And uh, anyway, so it might be Wyatt is is dead after after exerting himself too much. But anyway, I shall uh, bid you adieu. Cheerio. Farewell. Um. So, yes, so Sue, we come back to you. Your last choice, please. Sandbox game builders namely The Sims. Ah, The Sims, <laughs> The Sims, The Sims. I'm not obsessed with The Sims in any way, shape, or form. At all. You just play it an awful lot. T- tell us about The Sims, Sue. Tell us about The Sims. I like the idea of being able to build worlds and being able to build cities and being able to build things 
Um, so I like things like SimCity and things like that, and Roller Coaster Tycoon and Tropico and games like that. The Sims came along and added this element where not only could you build the world and the houses, control people and what they did and what life they had and, you know, every little element of life. It's like being God in a world. You know, you could kill them, you could not kill them, you could control what they ate, what they do, what they career they have, what choices they make on every little thing, how their life is, how their house is, how their everything. You could raise families with them. You could see how they go through generations of things. And now, I mean, I've gone through The Sims, The Sims 2, and now I'm on The Sims 3, you know. And I know The Sims 4 is out, but I'm probably going to stick with The Sims 3 for a bit, you know, and see how The Sims 4 develops and wait till they've added loads of add-ons and then probably move on to The Sims 4. But I am not in any way, shape or form obsessed at all. Like, I don't spend at least two hours a day playing Sims <laughs> on it. But I... I like the idea of shutting your brain off and just being able to kind of wobble around in this other place, in this other world where you, you're completely creatively free to just do as you please. And that's, you know, because I'm not creative like Leo. I can't write a book. I'm not creative like Justin. I can't sit down and draw a piece of artwork. I'm not Ian who can visually see things and, you know, go and, you know, put a podcast together and do I, I can't do this you know I can go and sing a song occasionally or I can but I can I can go and create a whole world in the sims that's mine and completely be in control of it and everybody in it and that's mine it's my little universe that I control and I love that so yeah I, I like being in sandbox games and I like having that freedom to be in control of those games so it's just me. Maybe I'm just the weirdo. No, 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 no. Well, clearly Sims. not, for The Sims is enormously popular. Yes, I, I also like learning Simlish. Zum, zum. <laughs> Ian, uh, I believe once upon a time, from PlayStation 2, you had the PlayStation 2 version of The Sims. I had it on PC first, then I got the, got, I got the version for the... Um... For the PlayStation Two, and uh, I, I, that's only that's only Sims One though. I haven't gone on to the joys of Sims Two or Three, um, but again, it, the thing you know, it's it's this wonderful kind of game where the objective is you just do stuff you want to do with the tools that you have, and it's 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 a whole subgenre of games that is 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 totally alien to the consoles. When it was Sims released on the console, I had to include a, a game with with a you know a sub game with objectives that you could fulfil. As you proceed through upward mobility and get married and have kids and everything, yes, it's 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 so wonderfully charming and uh, you know moddable. Well, at least Sims One was moddable. I don't know about the other games. And uh, the whole thing they about are, they're yeah. actually better. The more they've got on, the better they've got. Well, one that would hope so. One would hope so. But yeah. it, it is the whole thing about you constructing your little your little house with your little people who you've you you've made for yourself, and you know. They, they, they have friends and they have jobs and careers and they fall in love and they have children and you and you just as they earn money you go out and you look for more things to buy and build extensions and improve the bathroom um, I mean Sims 1 there's a certain frustration with the fact that I basically had to tell them to do everything otherwise they would not get out of bed in time in the morning to go to work I had to order them to eat their meals order them to tidy up uh, otherwise they would just their life would just fall into rack and ruin yeah, uh, they've got a bit more free will as time's yes. gone on. So now you can actually, you know, if you leave them for five minutes, they remember to go to the bathroom and they remember to eat and they remember to do certain things off their own back now. 
they're not brilliant still you know if you if you left them too long they will they will just fall apart but yeah, I, I they, believe, they will I, at least eat and drink and you yes. know go to the toilet now and shower you know? but <laughs> so. the, the sims i believe it, it's it comes from civilization doesn't it where originally you controlled cities it was simply downscaling to a domestic yeah. level of, yeah. of, of management but instead of like building cities and fighting earthquakes you're maintaining a house and you know Putting in fire alarms and, and burger alarms is pretty much your your life is now cosy as it's ever going to be. Yes, it, enormous fun game. You, it's as good as your imagination is good. I imagine this is why uh, Minecraft is the behemoth that it is at the moment, simply because it just provides you with a whole heap of tools and go knock yourself out, guys. What can earth can you do? Uh, I'm, I'm sure these days there's all kinds of Sims Online and things like that, and you all live in one great gated community, living in one wonderful city, having wonderful lives, being film stars and rock stars, or you know whatever whatever career you've chosen your Sims to do. And my word, <clears throat> you want to get someone to love your game, you get so personally invested in your tunes um, that you know the thought of like one day I'm going to switch this off and never going to play this again, I will be separated from these characters forever, is is something quite astounding and alien. It's like, well, I'll, I'll never delete them. This, <laughs> these dudes, no, I've put too much time and effort into them. I mean, maybe I haven't played it for quite a while, but get rid of it forever? This is insanity. <clears throat> I mean, I've got World of Warcraft, <clears throat> and on that I have a character I've been playing now for, God, too many years, this paladin human I have. And all the adventures have been doing on. One day, Blizzard is just going to turn off their servers, and that's it. Goodbye, Ian. Say goodbye to your two new putting all these hours into, and that's a horrifying concept to me. <laughs> I think perhaps I should go fork out some serious cash to have my figure 3D printed, just so I can have a permanent memento of the, of, of the, of the dude. Um, so yes, this is this is this is the ultimate sandbox game. And also, it's it's not about confrontation. It's not about getting your gun and going and killing some goons. It's just it's people and interactions of people, and it's it's a it's a slightly better life than the one we currently live in. So even if you live in a crap little apartment, you can still switch on your PC, and there's your glorious palatial palatial bungalow with like jacuzzi with all your cool friends and your wonderful lover and your beautiful children, and it's all just so nice and beautiful, and you can never get bored of buying jukeboxes. But I, I mean, as you said, it's kind of gone into Minecraft and it's gone into World of Warcraft and it's gone, you know, everybody has their little thing. You've got, what's the one you like to play that you used to always have, Leo? I can't remember what it was called. What was it about? Well, you used to create your own world thing. Oh, you used to have it on your PC. It's called a Word document in Leo's case, I think. <laughs> no, he's. It wasn't World of Warcraft because you didn't like World of Warcraft, but you had one. You've got it down there on your bloody files somewhere. Oh, Neverwinter Nights. That's it. Neverwinter yes. Nights has a game that kind of. Oh well, Neverwinter Nights was a, a D and D three point five construction kit yeah. that happened to come with an example campaign, you which like, is what's You like name. building your world. Oh and, God, you know, good everybody's grief! Got well, that thing that they like. Yes, I have to point out. Yeah, you won't stand up. Uh, anyway, yes. Uh, the the thing that I. I have to uh, bring up here is that there are those of us in the world who have to be very careful about <laughs> this sort of thing. Um, yeah, these are these are the things that will eat your life, <laughs> and occasionally you come across one, and for a little while it's wonderful. And um, you know, the, the last time I the one I can really remember being deeply into 
Uh, and the thing about Neverwinter Nights is that it's great to play through the scenarios. I do love that. When it comes to the building of them, you suddenly get confronted with this abyss. It's not actually that. It's at that level where it's enough. It, it's enough complexity that you kind of think, well, I have to sink serious time into making this work out. Uh, but then, on the reverse flip side of that, it's not so much time that you would go, no, I'm not going to bother doing that, because it's quite quick to do some a few quick things. I've made a few villages and put houses in them and let the characters go running around and, oh, look, I can do this, and then he runs and goes in the forest. And you know, I made this whole village forest cave setup that was quite good. Never went anywhere. Couldn't be bothered with the scripting language. Didn't go further. And the reason was because you get to a point, you suddenly go, wow, I'm really staring down a big time commitment here. And at least in a construction toy, that's one thing. But there was a game called Imperial Glory in which you built a sort of an 18th century army, Napoleonic type of army, and engaged in Napoleonic empire building and researched like technology to give yourself an (laughs) upper hand in complex. And you would just look away for a second and then you'd swear it was a second. It was four o'clock in the morning. (laughs) And... This is the thing. There are those of us who, I'd lo- you know, I I really wish that I, to a certain extent, that there was a, there was going to be a point at which... This is what happened at the Games Weekend. It got to the end of the first day and nobody seemed to want to do anything. And I was like, oh, oh I'm quite perky and I'm happy and people are playing games. Oh, I know what I'll do. And I got the laptop open because I had my laptop with me, and I was hovering over the Imperial Glory icon. I thought, this is going to be glorious. I am going to sit here all evening shuffling my little army about. I wonder how far down my Imperial route I'm going to get. This is going to be great. And at the moment at which I was going to click the button, three people came into the room and said, I heard you were running a game, and that was it. And this is the way that my life runs when it comes to these things. You know, I get that moment where I think, wow, technically I have nothing to do for the next 12 hours. Mm-hmm. And then that's it. It gets taken away. Something happens. So, yeah, I could never really get into them. But, yes, if it weren't for the fact that, that of that, if I had those spaces of time, Imperial Glory, Never Winter Nights, yes, they would be. You see me to they would be mine. Twenty-four yeah. hours a day. Ian would probably be on World of Warcraft. Yeah, so there we well, go. I'm, we all have I'm, nothing. I'm currently unsubbed from World of Warcraft. I'm waiting for new stuff to do, which yeah. I'm sure to be coming out later in the year. But I'm not as enthusiastic about it as I once was. It has to be said. Yeah. Uh, well, I hear that all the cool kids are currently doing some kind of Star Warsy thing or whatever it is. That's well, isn't that well? Let's not go to Star Wars. Uh, I I quite like the Star Wars MMO, but apparently the consensus is that they what do they call it? they call it they likened it to Titanic. Call it they call it Tortanic. Uh, so it's 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 all a rather sad story. I thought it was all right okay. actually. He's got hammered. Okay. Uh, Ian, your final choice. Well, you know, you talk about Doctor Who, and then then there's the Tom Baker years, there's the Christopher <laughs> Eccleston year, and then there's Paul McGann's Big Night Out. But I don't want to talk about any of that. I want to talk about the guy who made the Daleks, which was uh, Steve Terry Nation, who also made a series called Blake Seven, which I will wax lyrical about shortly. Neither of you have seen it. I know this. We've talked about it in the past. 
Um, but it, it was my, it, growing up, it was my number two science fiction series that was around because growing up in the 80s, there wasn't a huge amount of science fiction knocking about on your television. It was not in vogue, and by the 90s, it was a desert. Now, four years, uh, 52 episodes of uh, Desperados attempting to topple the Federation and failing. Um, it was brutal. It's low-budget science fiction. Uh, it cannot, you know, going to make, make apologies for that. It's shot like uh, a program would have been shot in that era, so it's it's a lot more a staged look to it. You know what I mean? There's the, the definite fourth wall, and here's the set, and you can tell which side of the room the cameras are on. And it's most there is there is location shooting, but all of it's in studio, and so that's that studio video feel to it. So yes, it looks dated as hell, and also I have to confess, it is on occasion camp as hell but uh, that something about it has stuck me in time it was it was the it was the characters that were written in this series that were just so memorable and i, I talked about in the past so i won't i would because we have this is turning into a very long podcast uh but it, it was just the fact that you had this um, breakaway character of avon who eventually became the leader of the series when blake disappeared and avon was supposed to be the cynical counterpoint second lead man to Blake, leading hero, of course. He was such a breakout character that with Blake gone, Avon immediately steps up to the plate as the new leader. And uh, they, they, they don't, they try to mobilize him a bit, it just doesn't work. So he, it does become a lot more kind of a mercenary. And it's just the fact that Avon is so ruthless. He's a man of his word, you know, if he says he's gonna shoot you, he will. But he has a certain principles, principles about him, I suppose. And he's just this ruthless calculating, um, you know, uh, re- well, he's not really revolutionary, but you know, he's out for what he can get. He's out to survive. And he's out to topple his enemies, and it's just you know, this series you follow for so long, and you get so invested in these characters in this universe. And yes, it, it, it definitely did get a little bit weaker towards the end. But even the last series, I think there's a few episodes there which are still stand amongst the best they've ever done. And also, it, it does have uh, the most nihilistic ending to a series you can possibly imagine where all of our heroes are pretty much gunned down by the Federation, which is now resurgent and as strong as ever. Um, and I think it, it talks about messages like, you know, of, if your police are brutal, it's because we live in a brutal society. You know, as much as the Federation is a vicious, evil thing, the society itself is not exactly made up of long-suffering, good-natured men. Everyone's pretty much out for what they can get in a, in a somewhat stark universe out there. And it was just that, I think, because Terminator is, is a bit of a... He's a page-turner writer. He's okay about having a thrilling story about now we're going to go blow up block Federation base, but it was the script editor of Chris Boucher who, I think, really brought out all these characters to be very distinctive because you haven't got special effects, you know, all you've got is your actors and your characters and the performances that they're going on. And it's a series I, I desperately treasure, and I, I look at fear with the concept that it could be revived one day in another sort of another sort of remake like Battlestar Galactica was, because you just know it's going to be fumbled. It's not going to be as good as Battlestar Galactica was, and the treasured memory is once again bulldozed over. But of course, it was on late seventies, early eighties. It was repeated slightly in the early eighties, and it was out on video and repeated in the UK. Gore. But by and large. It never broke out in America. There's been a massive generational shift. It is kind of a bit forgotten at this stage, and it is, has been left behind in the wastes of time. I mean, I, I, look, I watch it these days, and it's, I know it so well, so it's hard to watch for that reason as well. But uh, it was just such a beloved series for me at the time. The, you know, the, the thing, one of the things I would play with the Star Wars action figures, as it were. Um, so, yes, you know, a great piece of adolescent science fiction, I suppose. Well, I don't know quite because I, I was I was all teed up to be like, so what happens if they were like, 
we're going to bring it back. And you already covered that. So it, it just in, in your thing is that you, you don't want to see, you don't want to be like people who were fans of Battlestar Galactica in the 70s who suddenly went, oh, now Ronald D. Moore's doing new Battlestar Galactica and had to deal with those feelings. You don't want to have to deal well, with those feelings. It, you want your Blake 7 was, to remain as it was. I don't think Mon- about Blake 7, maybe I'm wrong here, but it's very English and it's also very of its time. Yes, never. I don't think so. it should be remade. I think it should stay where it is. As, as long as they understand why it was cool, and you know, it wasn't you know, obviously it's lacking special effects. It's, it's lacking modern ways of shooting and directing. It's lacking modern characters relevant to today's era. Uh, but you know, at the same time, you don't want to lose focus on what it's about. And Blake might be revolutionary with noble principles, but he's leading a band of criminals against the Federation, and I don't don't lose sight of that. It's also, it's also born, especially the first episode, it's very much born out of the 1984 tradition of like the state being an all-controlling thing. Because the first episode is basically Blake losing. It's, it's all about, it's the gut punches he has to take to uh, ground him in, in this, 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 this campaign against the Federation for presumably the rest of the series. And it, it's ultimately the fact that it, it does result in a, lo- a, lot, a loss. I mean, it took out a few bad guys along the way, but the principal villain of the series is still alive. Federation is resurgent despite having massive losses at some point. It, it, it kind of feels very real for that, and also because it ends on that note, it's so memorable in its aftermath. If it's actually won on top of the Federation, or the, the, best, the best outcome you'd hope would, would they become the new dictators, you know, ultimately, it, it kind of says something about us. You see, uh, that feels very politically of its time. That feels very politically right for its time. I was going to say, to a certain extent. They have remade it. They called it Firefly. Exactly. Well, the last series of... Because of, originally they had the uh, wonderful, immaculate ship, the Liberator, but in the last series they had Scorpio, which is this beat-up-on freighter. And uh, if I ever come over, I'll bring my Blake 7 Series 4 box set over and I'll put on one particular episode and go, this is basically an episode of Firefly. They made it in 1981. Enjoy. Because it is. they have a high story going on. There's intrigue and double-crossing going on. And um, yeah, it, it is it is Firefly before there's Firefly. I mean, Firefly itself, you know, it's it's a band of band of quote unquote rebels, so to speak, brown coats, losers of a war, just trying, and they're up against a much larger, um, all controlling empire. I mean, it's more sophisticated in Joss Whedon's case because it's not an evil empire. It, it's it's um, nannying benevolence is the problem with the with what's with the, with the alliance. Uh, but yeah, the, the whole the whole thing of your small gang of friends who you you just want to hang out with as they bicker and go through their strife of trying to live another day and get perhaps pirates some cash out of their latest wheeze, um, tremendously memorable. Well, I mean, to be fair, they, although you say that in Firefly the Empire wasn't evil, in fact. I think that they were supposed to be evil, but we never got there. I mean, no, that was, it was all about uncovering the evil that people that was lying at the stinking well, heart. Obviously, because it it's, never got... it's, it's an all-powerful state, and power corrupts, and so you know, there's yes. always people that know better. There's always people lying in their pockets and think they have an, have an entitlement to these things. Because as Firefly kind of makes its statement in the movie, where it says, "Human nature cannot change. You cannot, you cannot make." better people people will always be people and they will always have these complexities of good and bad about them uh it, which is in you know because even the, the the lead bad guy the operative in that one he's an evil doer but he has a noble ambition of creating a world without sin and you know it's a very psychotic idea because it leads to things like if we educate our children properly in a sort of brave new world type way we can make a generation more noble or less sinful than we are and I think it's that kind of a mentality that leads to abstinence-only education and bullshit like that, you know? 
Oh, so there we go. Wow, gosh. <laughs> and on that bombshell, I shall, I shall finish, off. finish yes. off. The final thing that I would like to place on the table for consideration is the Sandman. Ooh. All, all of the Sandman. All, uh, well, all of the Sandman except the two issues that have wheedled their way out of. I, you know, there's not many th- reasons to be grateful for not having a worldwide best-selling comic book series uh, attached to your name. You know, that you don't get buckets of cash and fame and you know all of this kind of stuff if if, if you don't do it. But one of the things that you should be grateful for if you haven't produced some epic saga of, of, that, that you know redefines uh, comic books, popular culture, takes on massive themes of mythology, is that after you've written it and you've gone, well, that was a fantastic period of my life, you don't spend 20 years and then go, oh, you know what, I've got more to say all of a sudden. So like, oh, just cringe. You know, fans in the sense of... You see, this is the thing about the word fan. Uh, the fan by which I mean people who undiscriminatingly I love X without any kind of criticism or even more bizarrely I may criticise the hell out of it but I'm still going to go and you know worst Star Wars movie ever I shall only watch it another six times that kind of thing you know I think there's got to be a point which you say no you've done this thing and that's it it's finished you know, in, in 15 years, if they go, yeah, we're going to get back together for a, a, a remaining cast reunion uh, miniseries of The Shield, I'm like, no, The Shield exists. It is a perfect thing. Just leave it where it is. But yeah, I mean, so discounting that, I mean, it may be great, but the main 10 texts and the Endless Night supplement of the Sandman and obviously the novel with the big illustrations. That's what I'm talking about here. You're a bit of a Neil Gaiman fan in general. I do I do love Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman is a master storyteller because of his understanding that discipline is highly overrated in storytelling and that you sh- you know you can you can have a bunch of mess and you can order it into something. And when people experience that mess that you have shuffled together, if you've thought about it with a storyteller's mind, they come away and they feel that they have gained something from the experience. And that therefore, you know, all of the things about master plots, it's all very useful as part of the tool set. But with a storyteller, all you've got to have is a story. And you tell the story and you try and make every facet of the story entertaining. American Gods is an amazing novel that Neil Gaiman has written where he said, I just wanted to write a novel which had all these digressions and bits and just like it was just this messy bag full of stuff, which American Gods is. And yet you read it and it is immensely an immensely satisfying uh, experience. And the Sandman as a, you know, a massive epic is just that and made all the more richer for the fact that, uh, you know, Neil Gaiman got some uh, time to work with DC and he did some runs on and then he, you know, he's worked with Marvel as well and done runs on, you know, he's on popular comic books and brought back. There was the Eternals that he brought back for Marvel and stuff like that. But one day he goes, you know, you've got this character, the Sandman. I think I could do something with that. And DC went, all right, and if that's what you want, because he wasn't, you know, a first line character, just go nuts. And it was in those two words, go nuts, that the Sandman concept really took off. 
I mean, what's really interesting about the meandering epic of the 10-volume Sandman series is that when he started writing it, uh, he mentions Arkham Asylum, and he it is a comic book, essentially. It's a weird comic book, but the Sandman is a comic book character. And then as the volumes continue and it becomes this global phenomenon and the story evolves because people will buy the Sandman no matter what, it slowly turns into something completely different. And yet, and he says, you know, I'm not really in that. When I look back on it, volume one, not really that happy because it, I tried to do comic books. And I think that kind of made the Sandman not really work as well as he could. But I think it's just a part of this idea that it's a mess. You start out with a comic book and you can almost see the mind of the, the author relax from a comic book mode into this bizarre epic that is not like any other comic book has ever been and probably will there will never be another comic book series like the sandman and every individual moment is precious and witty or the darkness is properly dark and the light bits are properly joyful and the characters can be funny or they can be thought provoking or you know and you know it's just this thing that is you know people don't talk enough about how crazy the sandman was and that parts of the story are these huge monumental short story collection digressions through various little episodes because that's the way a comic book can work you can have an issue about x and x can be something else and that, that there is this central core story that follows about the the dream god morpheus and uh his son well i mean it goes right back to the proper story of of orpheus and Eurydice, and the the fallout from that coming from the nature of Dream, as he has always been. And then it moves towards this resolution where Dream is reborn as something else. And that is, you know, and it has an actual story. You know, the character of Dream, the Sandman, has a journey, despite the fact that he is one of the seven endless. He is one of the... He is beyond a god in his scope, power, and and sort of aspect. He is a character that you should not be able to engage with or sympathise with. And in fact, it is very difficult. And what the way that Gaiman solves that problem is to surround him with other characters who you engage with and you're sympathetic with and that you, you take a lot of stuff from. And they don't always have happy stories, but, you know, they always have interesting ones. So, yes, the Sandman epic is definitely something that everybody should experience, particularly as it is complete. And I am I am worried that the new sort of prequel series, as it were, is going to be somewhat of a crystal skull to the marvellous uber epic that has come before. It, it does feel a bit kind of, mm, after all this time, really... Yes, I, 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 I never, I haven't read Sandman, unfortunately, but it, it, I know it's, it's, it's because it's so often said it's one of the most important comic book series is done, and again, game peak early. I don't know. No, no, he certainly didn't. He has. I mean, the thing about it is that the new, the one thing about it is that, and I can quite believe this, 
at the beginning when they and he, he writes the introductory story of the Sandman of the Dream, and it, you know, you say, well, this is an endless character. How can you bring him onto the stage in a modern era? And the way that Gaiman does this, which is obviously not a spoiler because it's right at the beginning, is that Dream spends a century or so trapped inside a mystical circle after having been conjured by some penny anti-sorcerer who keeps him in that circle because he's expecting death, but he gets Dream instead. And he doesn't know what to do, so he panics and keeps him trapped. And the first story is what happens when Dream is released from the circle and he has to reclaim all the power that he has lost in the meanwhile. But it says that when he's pulled into the Conjuring Circle, he has come from a mighty battle. He was weak, and that is why the Conjurer managed to get him into the circle in the first place. And that Neil Gaiman always was like, and yes, at some point we'll talk about, you know, what he was doing that led to him being trapped in the circle. And then he did ten volumes and never once came back to it. And he was like, oh yeah, kind of fit. So this prequel series is what was Dream doing that left him in such a weakened state that some, you know, tuppenny halfpenny conjurer in the 19th century could just put him in a circle and leave him there for a century. No one leaves the Sandman in a corner. But yeah, so, I mean, it does have provenance and form. Uh, But Neil Gaiman certainly hasn't, quote-unquote, lost it. Uh, He does things that are good and things that are less good but still better than most other people on a good day. So, you know, I mean, 1602, the Marvel 1602 universe, is a, an absolutely remarkable story and and really kind of uh, sort of does the two things of playing with the Marvel characters in a tongue-in-cheek way while at the same time having a satisfying, mysterious story which comes to a conclusion that is fit and proper. So, yeah, I mean, it, Neil Gaiman as a whole is, is brilliant. Yeah, just amazing author. Uh, he is my aspirational author. Figure. So you just basically put him Neil Gaiman in there, aren't you? You forget the Sandman, just no, Neil Gaiman. No, the Sandman <laughs> though is is of all the things. I mean, American Gods is a remarkable piece of work as well. But what I, formerly it would have been American Gods, but then I made the effort to go through all of the Sandman books and the idea of the Sandman story and its huge ten epic, ten volume epic sweep and all of the different stuff that happens during those stories is just like well that's an achievement that's like speaking epic. of epics i think we've probably come to the end of ours and we've gone through some epics in this one haven't we i mean we've had cthulhu in there alice has been in there neil gaiman's in there heavy just, metal heavy metal's been in there citizen kane's been in there jesus christ we've had some people yes in there. all human life <laughs> all human life has been described in the last couple of hours while you've joined us on our 50th and if if you feel that our cultural uh, heritage is not strong enough and you want to say well what about this where might they go to berate us in such a fashion on our yearly celebration, Ian? Well, one place people can go to complain about our appalling taste would be our Facebook page. It's our community hub. We put up links to our podcast there, as well as links we find interesting, and very occasionally we have discussions. But uh, podcasts are what it's all about, and for that 
points your web browser towards 80s kids, and that's 80s and letters, so E-I-G-H-T. Oh, I'm so tired. It's 80s kids as in letters, so E-I-E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S, kids.podomatic.com. Please go there and subscribe to our podcast using the podcast aggregator of your choice, or download to your PC for dark reasons of your own. I don't know, maybe 80s kids is one of your favourite things in the world. But um, that's anywhere our most recent podcasts can be found for our legacy of podcasts you want to go to. I'm pretty sure that you can still get them at leostableford.com, uh, where you can also find links to all the stuff that I've been doing. There's a product of a mind that would uh, toss into the ring the Sandman, Steampunk, Tarot, and whatever it was I did first. It's so long ago, I can't even remember at this stage. The weird Hamlet throwback. Oh, yes, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Um, so, yes, so if you want to see the, the love child of those ideas brought it today you can look at my wattpad where i'm doing stuff at the moment um and if you want to look at, at, at the product of, of someone who's done citizen kane and the warlock of firetop mountain and um, what was it justin's first one 2000 AD. 2000 AD. Of course. How could I forget that? Then you could go and look at his deviant art, uh, Justin Wyatt, a deviant art. It's probably best not to go wandering around in Sue's mind, so you can't do that. Yeah, anywhere. I mean, Alice in Wonderland, Heavy Metal, and The Sims should tell you I'm pretty eccentric at the best of times. So, yes. So uh, that's, <laughs> I guess, all from us for, for 50 shows. And. Uh, uh, so soon, 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 we shall be ploughing on with our epic journey, which I believe, I think we are, I mean, what's really interesting about this, we were kind of at the halfway point, aren't we, like 1993, yes. television. so what we've got, uh, uh, so that's another 18 years that down, and we must have done from 1975-70, yeah, we're about the halfway point, so uh, tells you tells you very many interesting things but i think it's going to take us longer to yes. meander through the 90s so uh yeah so things to come so far so 80s kids well uh, thank you for sticking with us for the first year we promise the second year will be far better yes and possibly even shorter <laughs> <laughs> and i promise i won't interfere as much <laughs> so, so well no, and i'll can, keep away from the you're perfectly you're perfectly welcome to come and obviously we're going to get to a point eventually where you've got many things to talk about and many well, things I'll to especially keep on. away from pulp fiction year that'll, yes that'll be oh no i want to hear this now <laughs> <laughs> well i've heard nothing but praise of pulp fiction my entire life i want this takedown to move on from that, we're that cliffhanger waiting in the air to be resolved. We shall move on and for now just say bye-bye. Bye. See you next week. And so if you follow the like divergent line down here, you realise this is actually like an alternative timeline that's running parallel to all the other timelines. And here you can see Kane is facing off against the Saraphan Lord. And Kane is like, if your kind ever breach that place of banishment again, I shall be waiting. And then he sticks in with a soul reaver and devours his soul. It's freaking awesome. Anyway, yes, this is one of my favourite things. It's my Bayou Tapestry style of the Legacy of Kane timeline preserved behind glass. What? Oh, it's my goodness, has it been two hours? Oh well, someone else have a go. So, 
Who is next? I'll, I'll go next. Okay. So hopefully really specific here because I actually have the thing in my hand, okay? It shows you how treasured it is. <laughs> Justin, you bastard! Oh, amazing! Do you know how many man hours it took to weave oh, that? Amazing! 